Hello, my name is Larry Turnbull with ACB Radio, and welcome to the 2018 ACB Conference in St. Louis, Missouri. And with me is one of the sponsors, an Emerald sponsor, uh, Malcolm Glenn with Uber. Hello, Malcolm. Hi, Larry. How are you? Doing great, and thank you for being an Emerald sponsor for the 2018 ACB Conference and Convention. And um, Uber has, uh, as many of you know, uh, Uber is one of the ride-sharing services uh, going around the country and even around the world. And um, over the last year uh, since we last met, uh, Uber's added a couple of uh, features to their app that you can get on uh, the iPhone or Android. And um, one of those that I really like is where you can add uh, multiple stops if you have to before you reach your final destination. So, uh, Malcolm, go ahead and talk to us about uh, that as well as any other um, options you've added to the app over the last year or so. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Larry, and um, thank you to everyone for listening. I believe this is our third ACB conference, and we're excited to be here as always. You know, one of the great things about this conference is it's a really amazing opportunity to hear feedback from real-world users about what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. So what we've heard over the last year is, for the most part, the app works pretty well, but there are a couple things that we can do uh, to really um, um, guard against some of the really small things that people um, have pop up as they're using it. So, Larry, as you mentioned now, users have the opportunity to add multiple stops. So if you're driving someplace with um, your friend and you're both getting dropped off at your respective homes, you can actually put in up to three different stops. And the driver, once they get to the first stop, will simply, in that trip, go to the second stop in that trip, third stop in that trip. Um, and if you're worried about being able to split the fare between the three of you or the two of you, you can actually use an in-app feature that allows you to send a fare request to anyone in your phone book such that you can split the fare um, and don't have to worry about exchanging cash. So that's something that we're really excited about for people traveling together. And we certainly do encourage people to travel together as much as possible. The real way to, I think, unlock potential is to have as many people in as few seats as possible, which ultimately long-term get cars off the road. One of the other things that we've done over the last year is we have implemented a feature for voiceover in iOS, whereby we read the estimated time of arrival out loud so users aren't guessing as to how far away their car is. Um, instead of having to proactively go and find where the ETA is, well, read it in regular intervals so you know that your driver is three minutes away, two minutes away, one minute away, which is particularly useful if raining outside or you want to wait until the car is nearby before going out to the curb or whatever the case is. Knowing the ETA has been very, very important. Um, we've also implemented a feature in some locations whereby you can now know the color of your car. This has been a request from many people, and what we hear from many users who are blind is, if there's a sighted person around, I'll ask that person for guidance as to, you know, whether they see that license plate pull up or a car that's a certain color pull up. I can't tell them what color to look for if the color is not in the app on VoiceOver and 
talk back. And so that's something we've instituted over the last year as well. And we continue to be very, very focused on making sure that we're implementing a robust and workable service animal policy. Um, I think it was for last year's conference, we changed our service animal policy and instituted some very robust features. Um, we updated the policy in the first place. We started sending in-app notifications to new and existing drivers, which means all new drivers receive an in-app notification that requires them to acknowledge their contractual and legal obligations related to accepting service animals. And existing drivers receive that in-app notification as well as quarterly reminders of their requirements to accept service animals. And then we made the process better. We uh, put forth in the app a more, a more easily accessible way to um, report service animal denials and we have a dedicated team that makes sure that if those denials do take place drivers are kicked off the platform um, we have a very very strong um, no tolerance policy for those instances we think things are getting better but we still hear that there are issues so we're committed to continuing to figure out how can we make this policy work even better than it is how can we continue to make changes both from the app perspective with the technology and from the sort of service and platform perspective to make sure that as people are using the service, uh, most people seem like they're having a very positive experience, but we really want to make sure that as many people as possible are having that positive experience and that we can mitigate issues as much as they can talk about. Perfect. That was going to be my next question because uh, I know Uber is working on uh, tightening down on these issues with drivers refusing those with service animals, and yet I'm still hearing incidents like that uh, still occurring. So if that does happen to a rider, um, how would they report this incident? Uh, what are the ways they can do that? So there should be a menu item in the help menu on the very first page that says, I'd like to report a service animal issue. And that's actually one of the things that we've done is we've moved that up to the very first menu. So you don't have to go searching deep into the help um, area to find where you can support uh, report a service animal issue. So it should be on the very first page. And you simply write in to our support team. And again, we have a dedicated team focused solely on service animal issues. Uh, you write into that team, give a brief explanation of what happened. It can be very brief. I had a service animal and the driver drove past me once they, once I became a uh, parent in their, in their line of sight or something like that. Um, that goes to a dedicated team that looks into it. They uh, will usually reach out to you just to confirm your, your um, account of the instance. Um, and if it's deemed that that's in fact what happened, um, the driver is not allowed to drive on the platform anymore. So they are disqualified from the platform. Um, I think this is important because in the past, we've given drivers more and more opportunities to uh, prove that this was a, you know, just sort of a flash in the pan, a singular um, mistake. Um, but what we realized is if we're communicating this information to all drivers before they drive the first time, then there's really no excuse. And so as we ramped up that communication, both in terms of in-app communications and email communications, we recognize that we can't give any tolerance to drivers when they make those mistakes. Um, as you mentioned, Larry, these things still do happen. And operating at the scale that we do, for perspective, Uber gives well over 15 million rides around the world every day. Again, that's 15 million rides. Um, 
there's inevitably going to be issues, issues related to service animals, issues related to safety, issues related to drivers and being distracted and fundamentally interpersonal issues between two people. Um, and, and we know that's going to happen, but we can do our best to mitigate it. And I think our challenge is a little bit different than a lot of other tech companies. And I worked a lot uh, on some issues related to this um, stuff when I was at Google. I spent almost three years at Google before I came to Uber. And Google's issues were largely in the digital world, right? It was a matter of making digital devices uh, accessible and, and, and the digital interfacing with hardware devices accessible. Um, we have both that challenge and also the added challenge of mitigating real world experiences and engagements between real people. Um, and that doesn't mean we don't have a really strong and important responsibility to make sure those issues occur as early as possible. But we do have to recognize that there will be issues, particularly at the scale that we operate. Um, and we need to work as hard as we possibly can to mitigate them, to make them um, extremely rare. And when they do occur, to make sure that we're taking the right action to mitigate those actions taking place going forward. Great. And thank you for being on with me today. And uh, hope to see uh, somebody from Uber at the uh, convention. I'll look forward to being you. Centene Corporation is proud to be a vendor at the 57th Annual Conference of American Council of the Blind in St. Louis. Centene is in booth number 30. Centene is a national healthcare company and ranked number 61 on this year's Fortune 500 list. Our rapid growth is due to the commitment of transforming the health of the community, one person at a time. Our work environment is inclusive, and we believe everyone performs better when they have tools required for success. We invest in our people and technology so you have resources advocates, and experiences to facilitate your successful career journey at Centene. Again, please come to booth number 30, where Centene hiring staff are eagerly waiting to share opportunities with you. Centene Corporation is proud to be a vendor at the 57th Annual Conference of American Council of the Blind in St. Louis. Centene is in booth number 30. Centene is a nationwide healthcare company and ranked number 61 on this year's Fortune 500 list. Our rapid growth is due to the commitment of transforming the health of the community, one person at a time. Our work environment is inclusive and we believe everyone performs better when they have tools required for success. We invest in our people and technology so you have resources, advocates, and experiences to facilitate your successful career journey at Centene. Again, please come to booth number 30, where Centene hiring staff are eagerly waiting to share opportunities with you. Centene Corporation is proud to be a vendor. 
Hello, everyone. I'm talking today with Ellen Strom from J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the sponsors of the 2018 ACB Conference and Convention. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Janine. And today we are going to talk a little bit about what J.P. Morgan Chase is bringing to the convention. But first, I would love to find out, Ellen, how do you get feedback on the products that you design So there are basically two ways that we go about doing this. We do it with customer research and we do it with customer complaints. So we actually have a group within our design team that focuses on user research. And my team, which is called ECAT or Electronic Communications Accessibility Team, our center of excellence works with the research team to add people with disabilities to their research studies. We want to hear what works and what, and what doesn't work for this customer segment. We want to make sure that our product designs are as inclusive as possible. We're also coordinating user studies at conferences like ACB so we can hear from your membership and incorporate your feedback into our products as well. And then, unfortunately, we get customer complaints. Mm -hmm. And anything that that impacts one of our sites, Chase.com, or one of our mobile apps like Chase Mobile, comes to my team, and we research it. We try to duplicate what the customer's experience was uh, so that we can determine, do we just need to give some information? Do we need to explain how to accomplish what you're trying to do? Because maybe you can't, you know, maybe they couldn't figure out how to navigate to a site. Maybe it wasn't as findable as it should be. Uh, Do we need to provide a workaround while we fix an issue that is in production? Or do we need to work with product and design teams to improve the overall customer experience? So those are the two ways we do it. And with the wide range of products that Chase has, how do you make sure that those products work with accessible technology and adaptive equipment? So we we do it in a lot of ways. Probably the most important that we have found is getting accessibility into all areas of our project. We want to make it, you know, we want to move it as far left in the project life cycle as possible so that at the planning stages, accessibility is being thought about. We want all roles who are involved in planning, designing, building, and testing digital content to understand how their role impacts the accessibility of our products. We've incorporated accessibility checkpoints throughout the project lifecycle so we can make sure it's happening. We also have a report that helps us manage this. It shows us where it's working, where it's not, so that we know which resources might need a little bit of additional training. We also have a comprehensive accessibility methodology. So we feel that a strong testing program combines the use of test tools and code inspection with the use of end-user devices, techniques, assistive technology. So we make sure we're using screen readers. We make sure that we're tabbing through the site and that it works for somebody who can't use a mouse. We also have an accessibility page that's available from our public site. Uh, It's just called Accessibility, and it talks more about our commitment to accessibility. It includes our software recommendations 
for the best user experience on our sites and our mobile apps. In these days of everyone, you know, creating some wonderful, wonderfully visual digital content, uh, how do you make sure that everyone who creates that digital content understands their responsibilities? So we really strive for self-sufficiency. ECAT has created a knowledge base and a training program for each role. It's a mix of e-learning and instructor-led training courses. Because there's so much to learn, we feel it's important that it's specifically geared towards each role because it's better absorbed when it focuses on what each person needs to know and that the training can be taken at each person's preferred pace. They might prefer e-learning. They might prefer checklists. They might prefer videos. So we try to make it available in different ways so that they can do it in, the, you know, in their preferred way. We also have accessibility leads who are available for our project teams so that the project teams can ask questions and get answers at the most important time when they're actually trying to do the work. This is all very exciting. So what are you going to be bringing to the ACB convention? And what what is your favorite part? Because uh, Chase has been a part of our convention now for several years. So what's, what's your favorite part of the convention? So we're absolutely thrilled to be there doing some user research. So hopefully... People, you know, we know we have filled all of our, our slots for it, so we hope to see a lot of people and to get a lot of great feedback. We have been coming to the ACB conference, my team specifically, for three years, and we think it gets better every year. We love working with the team that coordinates the conference. They're very responsive and very helpful. We love interacting with the membership and hearing their personal stories and experiences it really keeps us motivated and wanting to do more. Well, thank you so much, Ellen Strom from J.P. Morgan Chase. And we thank Chase for being a sponsor of the 2018 ACB Conference and Convention. Ellen, could you give us the accessibility website again? It's chase.com backslash accessibility. If you or someone you know is blind from retinitis pigmentosa, there may now be light at the end of the tunnel. Known as the Second Sight Argus II Retinal Prosthesis System, this is the only FDA-approved treatment for end-stage retinitis pigmentosa. Find out more by calling 888-826-2695. Call 888-826-2695 to learn more about an FDA-approved system that provides useful artificial vision for those blinded by retinitis pigmentosa. Once again, the number to call is 888-826-2695. Call now. Argus 2 is indicated for patients who are completely blind due to retinitis pigmentosa. Possible side effects that may require further treatment include wound reopening, low eye pressure, eye infection, and retinal detachment. For more information, including all potential risks associated with the device and procedure, call 888-826-2695. That's 888-826-2695 or visit our website at SecondSight.com. This is Jason Castingway with ACB Radio, and I am here with Kelly Egan from Sprint Accessibility. Hi there, Kelly. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we at ACB want to thank Sprint for their Emerald sponsorship of the 2018 ACB Conference and Convention. Well, it's great to be a sponsor. Um, this is the fourth year I've 
been on board that we've sponsored the conference and it's a great time every year. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. So what's up and coming at Sprint Accessibility? Well, let's see here. Well, we're excited to be at the convention. We will be hosting a booth as we do typically, and we'll be able to also have a store there. So we have the idea of bringing retail to the event, uh, which we did last year as well, so that individuals are able to stop by our booth and talk to us. And if they're interested, they're able to get a new line, get a new switch to Sprint, upgrade their phones, get accessories, whatever they would be able to do in a store. Um, And so we'll have retail people there. And then we'll have me, who's a blind Sprint employee that Mm -hmm. can answer questions and, you know, service people. So I'm really excited about it. That's great. Some other things that we have to offer, which I think is pretty special, is for people who actually switch to Sprint or upgrade, who happen to be current customers, whichever way, they are offered a free KNFB Reader Enterprise license. So that's typically a $99 charge to get the application, but Sprint will provide it at no charge to our blind and low vision upgrades and new customers. Wow. Very nice. We're really just trying to make Sprint, you know, the best solution, uh, the, you know, great provider to the blind and low vision community and resolve some of the challenges that come along with blindness and with, you know, the interaction with blindness and wireless devices Mm -hmm. Um, and make sure we have accessible devices and we know how to help people get on board and, and use their devices effectively. So that's really what we're up to. So we've got the free KNFB reader. Um, The plans this year are good and competitive in terms of unlimited everything plans are great. Mm -hmm. Um, Devices will have the iPhones and the Androids, the Samsung devices, and we'll be able to answer questions. That's great. Does Sprint support provide any special services for like say i'm a customer uh who's blind calling with some specialized questions about screen reader or something like that does sprint do something about that there is um, a sprint accessibility care team so there's a phone number 855-885-7568 that if they call that number um, they'll go directly to the accessibility care team to ask questions and get support. They don't know how to use a screen reader. I mean, I don't know that they could get that technical, but they could help them with the accessibility features on their device. Okay. And if they don't have the answer, they'll call, you know, they'll get it and get back to the person. Mm -hmm. So it's really a great customer support team to have on board. It's so helpful when you have a dedicated team. You don't have to fiddle through and talk with somebody who doesn't know and may send you to the wrong place, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And ultimately, people wind up with me. (laughs) Oh, okay. You know, and and I'm happy to help any way I can. Uh, I'm not an expert or a technician, but I sure use my phone all the time. The other thing we have to offer is free directory assistance to blind and low vision individuals. And we're just upgrading our large print and braille bills. 
So if you want your invoices or your monthly bills in Braille or large print, we're able to provide that as well. Okay. And also via Braille online. So if you have a Braille printer or Braille display on your computer, you can also get your bill that way. Oh, that's wonderful because that was going to be my next question. (laughs) Wow. Oh, good. Now, we talked about a phone number. Is there an area on your website that people can directly go to to find information? Yes, it is www.sprint.com slash accessibility. Okay, nice and easy. Or they can go to sprint.com slash vision. Okay. And that will get them to the vision website, which gives them the information they would need. They can buy their phone from there if they'd like to, um, or at a store, so on and so forth. You know, I think buying a phone online is kind of hard for those of us who can't see, Mm -hmm. only because you get a phone in a box, and and then you need to figure out how to do everything. So exactly, I'm not sure that that's the easiest way to do things, but people can do it any way they want to. We just want to make sure that they have options. Yes. So I'm wondering what the difference is between the vision and the accessibility. Accessibility is going to have deaf and hard of hearing information as well. Okay. And a vision is just vision. Okay. We're excited and we're so engaged and Sprint's getting more and more involved in the blind and low vision community. So we're there. Kelly, I want to thank you for your time and also acknowledge once again that Sprint is an Emerald sponsor and we thank you very much for that. We are looking forward to it, and we love to support ACB. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at convention. Great. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. I'm Larry Turnbull, and we are at the Union Station Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri, for the 2018 American Council of Line Conference and Convention. The general session will be getting underway in about five minutes. I'll uh, bring up the house and you can listen to Karen Idol as she entertains us on the piano.
The American Council of the Blind Conference and Convention is about to begin. Please take your seats. Thank you.
welcome to the ACB Gateway to Success Conference and Convention. Please welcome back ACB President Kim Charlson. Now boarding the ACB Gateway to Success Express. The American Council of the Blind welcomes. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I want to um, thank this morning's entertainment is, was uh, Terry Nord from St. Louis. And thank you for that great, lively music. It was beautiful. All right. To... Um, to begin our session this morning, we will have an invocation from Rabbi Randy Fleischer from the Central Reform Congregation here in St. Louis, Missouri. Rabbi Randy. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Good morning, everybody. It is really a privilege uh, for me to be here with all of you. I know you've been here for a few days, but I want to take my turn in welcoming you to St. Louis. The way we say welcome in Hebrew, which is the language of my tradition, the Jewish tradition, we say bruchim habaim. But literally translated, those words bruchim habaim mean even more than welcome. They mean that everyone that has come here is a blessing. And my friends from this American council... I believe that with all my heart. You have, come together, you have come together here in St. Louis to make the whole world a better place, to increase independence, security, equality of opportunity, and quality of life for more people, and there is no more noble purpose. The morning is a wonderful time to pause before you continue your important work. So much time in front of you at the beginning of the day. Time for words and acts of kindness, time for active listening, time for exchange of ideas, even when you disagree. Jewish tradition says that civil arguments, when the goal is for the common good, and when there is mutual respect and compassion, these arguments can be for the sake of heaven. There should be time this day for establishing and deepening relationships. Resolve yourselves right now to have a meaningful, a meaning-filled day on the cusp of this new day that you will spend together here in the Gateway City. May you truly enter through many gateways of success because success for you is a blessing for us all. Now go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Sure. Thank Good you so much. <laughs> For our Pledge of Allegiance this morning, I introduce to you to lead us our two remaining leadership fellows for 2018, Darian Slayton-Fleming from Gresham, Oregon, and Debbie Trevino from Newark, Delaware. Um, please rise. All right, go ahead. 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Behave yourself. Amen. (laughs) All right. Very good. You may be seated. All right. Are are you ready for your morning dose of margarine? I want to recognize our wonderful advertising and sponsorship coordinator for ACB, Marjorie Beeman. Good morning, everyone. Are you awake yet? Okay. This morning I'm reading all the sponsors, and I know I told you by this day of the week I would give you what the amount is of each one of the levels. Double Diamond sponsors or $25,000. IRA, Educational and Recreational Events. General Motors, Transportation Services and Continuing Education Units. Google, ACB Radio Worldwide Broadcast. Microsoft, ACB Conference Banquet. Band of Pharmaceutical, Audio, Visual Services, and Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Give them a hand. Diamond Sponsors, 20,000. Verizon, Oath, Conference Communication Center, and Marketplace. Give them a hand. Emerald Sponsors, 15,000. Cisco Systems, Volunteer Services, Comcast, Your Day at the Conference Tuesday, July the 3rd, that's today, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, Exhibit Hall, Sprint, Information Desk, Uber, Conference Registration, give them a hand. Ruby Sponsors, 10,000. Adobe ACB Scholarship Mentoring Program, AT&T ACB Cafe, Amazon Audio Description Project Conference and Training Institute, Charter Interpreter Services for Deafblind Attendees, Facebook ACB Auction and Performing Arts Showcase, HIMSS ACB Workshops, and seminar programming and future ACB leader or young professional, Humanware, official sponsor of all general sessions, Regal Cinema, Kids Explorer Club, and ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk, BFO, official conference program. Give them a hand. Onyx Sponsors, 5000 Buell Fund, ACB, Brenda Dillon, Memorial Walk and Recreation Zone, Cox Communications, Audio Described Movie 
and sponsor a student, future ACB leader, or young professional, Meckler Degeneration Foundation, ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk, National Association of Broadcasters, General Operating Expense, National Industries for the Blind, ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Give them a hand. Topaz Sponsor 3000, ACB Lions Scholarship Winner Travel. Give them a hand. Coral Sponsors 2000, Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America, Reception for Outstanding Blind Students, Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired San Francisco, General Session July 2, give them a hand. Pearl Sponsors 1000, Amtrak, ACB Cafe July 2, Library Users of America, NLS Talking Book Narrator, Lighthouse for the Blind of Seattle, Orientation Dinner for Outstanding Blind Students, Maxi Aids, ACB Cafe, July 1. Give them a hand. Then we have silver sponsors. Those are $50. I will read these. Michael Alvarez, Artis Bazin, Donna Brown, Carolyn Burley, David Cameron, Joey Couch, Daniel Christie, Norman Delkey, Rita Dillick, Jay Dowdney, Paul Edwards, Michael Garrett, Peggy Garrett, Mike Cadino, Vicki Golithely, Cynthia Hurkawa, Kathy Holly, Mandy Holly, Greg Hollins, Judy Jackson, Jim Jarek, Darlene Johnson, Richard Johnson, Martin Kuhn, Kathy Lamb, John Lipsy, Ronetta Nakama, Alan Peterson, Chris Prentice, Ralph Prince, Bruce Radke, Lynn Roberts, Shirley Roberts, Stuart Russell, Kathy Schmidt Whitaker, Donna Zilliker, Sandra Sermons, Kathy Shelton, Paul Shelton, Rick Toriano, Sandy Toriano, Larry Turnbull, Kathy Van Guten, Penny Verti, and Richard Young. Give them a hand. It's never too late to be an individual sponsor. I'm turning the program over to President Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Our first Emerald sponsor presentation this morning will be from our good friends at J.P. Morgan Chase. We have with us Mark Kwok, Vice President, and Chayton Bakru, Senior Accessibility Specialist, and they're from San Francisco, California. Welcome. Hi. Mark? Yes. Hi. Nice to meet you. And Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for uh, taking a few minutes of your time to, for, to allow us to share what we do at J.P. Morgan Chase to make our products accessible. Uh, Chain and I work. Chain and I work within our accessibility team. We are the center of excellence 
at JPMC. So uh, I will start off by sharing a little bit about ourselves, and then today I'd like to share with you some of the things we do at JP Morgan to make our products accessible, such as how are we shifting left in the product development cycle. And to accomplish that, we'll talk about a few of the things that we're doing. One would be through scaling, through training. We're also uh, have created advisors, accessibility advisors. And in addition, we are very involved in user research uh, when it comes to accessibility. In fact, that's uh, part of the reason we're here at the conference is to conduct user research. And I have met some of you out there uh, helping us with our studies. So my name's Mark Kwok. I'm with the accessibility team for about five years. Uh, previously, I've been in other parts of the bank. So overall, I've been in banking for 21 years. I started at Washington Mutual, kind of worked my way up. I was in the branches for seven years. So I'm very familiar with the uh, customer service aspect of the, of the bank branches. Then after the seven years in the branches, I worked in training. So I worked to make sure our employees are coached and trained to provide excellent customer service. Then I moved on to innovations for a couple of years, working on innovative products for our customers. Then there was an opportunity that came up five years ago in accessibility where we needed to scale training. And how do we scale training? It's, we we want to start off by drawing awareness, right? And so I'm going to talk about that a little more in just a few minutes, but I'll let Chayton introduce himself, and then uh, I'll come back. Chayton. Good morning. Hi, my name is Chetan Bakru. I'm a senior accessibility specialist at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, I've been with the firm for four years now. Uh, before that, uh, before coming to Chase, I worked for as an accessibility consultant for Level Access, and I've also worked for National Industries for the Blind, doing IT help desk work, um, and I've done some web development uh, work for other companies in the past. I have a master's in software engineering. So I want to talk about uh, shifting left in the product development life cycle. So when I started at Chase four years ago, we were following, uh, very much following a waterfall approach where um, the accessibility team was reserved for uh, testing a lot of the time after a project had been built um, and we were doing all the testing and writing visual accessibility analysis reports and providing them to the, to our project teams, but we didn't we couldn't really determine how we we would fit in exactly because, with, as you know, with the waterfall approach, uh, it's very difficult to stop moving parts. So uh, everything is planned out ahead of time before code is written. But if accessibility issues creep into the project uh, at some point, either doing de design, development, or testing, then it's very hard to go back and fix it in the end. It can very, very, be very costly in terms of both time and money. So, um, but the good thing is that in the last two or three years, we've had a major um, culture change in our organization where we've worked hard to advocate for people with disabilities and ra raise awareness uh, for accessibility uh, in the organization. Um, 
one of the, the ways in which we've done that is becoming more agile. So, um, first of all, uh, we uh, engage in the requirements phase with uh, um, our, our project teams and make sure that uh, accessibility is introduced as far left into the process as possible. So, we work. Um, we, our charter authors, when uh, new projects come up, have to, uh, for each line of business, or the charter authors have to answer a series of questions related to accessibility. Um, and if uh, they don't, they don't um, incorporate accessibility into the project, then things can't move forward. So that's one of the th ways in which we ensure that our products and services are accessible. Um, the other. Uh, thing is we recently introduced a concept called accessibility advisors. So accessibility advisors are basically product owners from an accessibility perspective. So each of us is on the, the uh, accessibility team is, is assigned to a particular uh, product or, um, or tribe and um, we basically oversee all of the um, roles on our scrum teams, so um, developers, designers, QAs, content editors, we oversee them, help manage them from an accessibility point of view, making sure they have the support they need, um, but we, and we, we allow them to, to grow by learning about accessibility. We ourselves don't do all the work anymore, so we, the good thing about being agile is that we can be a part of the, the process from the very beginning and work with our teams through collaboration all the way from requirements to through design to development, um, testing, work alongside our teams to help them learn more about accessibility, um, learn how to meet WCAG success criteria, for example. We can teach, we can learn, we can um, learn new things ourselves, um, test alongside QA, teach them how to use the screen readers the mobile devices, the, the, um, all of the software. Um, and if something comes up, we, uh, because Agile has a very short iteration period in each sprint, we can uh, fix accessibility issues as they come along. So um, the other thing is our, our advisors, uh, what, what makes us accessibility advisors? Well, we all come from different backgrounds. We have different levels of knowledge and experience. We bring different tools and techniques and perspectives to the table. Uh, we, uh, a lot of us uh, come from reputable accessibility consulting firms like uh, myself from Level Access. We have people from DQ, um, people with different... Uh, some of us have um, disabilities, some of us don't, some members of us are members of the W3C and some of us are not, so it allows everyone to learn from each other. We also have daily calls where all of the advisors get together to discuss important accessibility issues, um, and one of the, the things is that it, 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 this allows us to establish a one voice, and one voice is important because with uh, close to 30 subject matter experts, working within the firm to raise awareness about accessibility, it can be very confusing and, and difficult to um, maintain consistency if we don't have a one voice. So it's important that we deliver a consistent experience with all of our digital products and services. So um, we uh, get together, discuss important accessibility issues, establish the one voice, document that, and then um, make sure that that same guidance 
that's being used by all of our accessibility advisors. Um, in terms of uh, sharing our accessibility knowledge, we um, do that in several ways. We hold, uh, for example, brown bag sessions with our QAs. Um, we collaborate with developers, making sure they, they're developing clean and accessible code um, that's useful for everyone. I'm working with our designers to, to help them review wireframes. And so we're, we're enabling everyone, we're enabling others in our, in our organization to own their piece when it comes to accessibility, rather than doing all of the testing ourselves. Um, and uh, another thing we do is um, we have an internal accessibility knowledge base that anyone in the firm can refer to. Um, so we have tutorials, code samples, things like that, that anyone can refer to for common accessibility issues. They don't, they don't have to come to us all the time. Um, they can, we can focus on the more complex accessibility issues and, and educate our teams um, on those rather than spending time with the uh, more common things that we see all the time. Um, the, so another uh, thing we do is training, and um, I'll turn it back to my colleague Mark now to let him expand on that. Thanks, Jay. So when I joined a team five years ago, we had about 12 team members. Now we're three times the amount, but still in an organization of our size, we can't reach out to everyone. So as Chayna mentioned, we want to enable others to help us spread the word within the firm. So one of the ways is through training. And so one of the proud things I've done in the last five years is to help drive awareness out there. We've trained, the, the course we've designed that's online-based has gone out to over 35,000 employees across the firm. And then we have role-based specific courses, as Chayna mentioned, to the different job families. So folks like QA, in development, designers, content editors, those we have specific training that we've rolled out to. Uh, in addition to that, we also have a more rigorous training program. We train accessibility champions within the different organizations and job families. So we would embed, so we would train and embed certain people like a key, let's say, designer or developer, uh, QA person, who have gone through our rigor rigorous training, who are, who are actually trained by our subject matter experts, can go back and be accessibility advocates for us. In addition to training and our accessibility advisors, I, the last thing I'd like to talk about are our user research that we've done. So the last three years at ACB, this year included, we have reached out and we're very thankful for the help of members who have volunteered to help us uh, test our products for accessibility. This year we're testing our mobile product. Previous years we've, test, we've tested our website. And what I've done with the recommendations is I've taken it back to our stakeholders, taken it back to our designers, editors, developers, etc., and shared with them how we can continue to improve our products and make them more usable, not just accessible, but usable. Now, you know, we continue to learn every day. There's, there's so much to learn in the accessibility space. I want to say it's, it's a journey, and I'm, you know, we are very glad that we're going to be you know, working with you all uh, in the coming years. So thank you for allowing us to speak for a few minutes with you.
you. Thank you. Okay. We always appreciate hearing from J.P. Morgan, and I want to thank them again and ask for a round of applause for their support for our Leadership Fellows Program. Thank you. I have, uh, I have a mortgage with them, and uh, it's almost paid off, which makes me happy, but we'll have to figure out... We'll have to figure out a new a new program I can work with them on. <laughs> but so um, it's my pleasure to recognize um, our Emerald sponsor, a friend of ACB, um, Kelly Egan, who is the customer relations um, blind low vision outreach manager for Sprint from San Diego, California. Welcome, Kelly. Good morning. Oh, there she is. Hi. Oh, wow. Is my hair on fire? Pretty much everything that could go wrong this morning did. And I just want to let you know I was afraid of being late because I'm afraid of margarine. Anyway, I am here with my guide dog, Hope. And we're representing Sprint again. We've been here the last few years with a booth. And I've seen a lot of you come by, and I love seeing you. We have some fun when you come by. And I want to take an informal survey, if you don't mind. For you, I'd like those of you who have an Android to make some noise. Yeah! Okay, good. And those of you who have an iPhone, make a noise. <laughs> and those of you, we don't want to forget you, who have a flip phone, make a noise. <laughs> okay, well, my point is I just need to bring the right equipment to these events, so I wanted to make sure we had enough of each. Anyway, um, I wanted to tell you a couple things that we've got going on. Um, is anybody here over 55? <laughs> well, there's a new plan that we just introduced uh, that's 55 and over plan that's um, basically very cool. Uh, $70 for two lines for unlimited everything. So if you want to check it out, come by my booth at number 21 and we'll talk about that. And we got lots of other um, affordable plans as well. What I'm most excited about, however, is that literally the day before I got here, we got approval to have a promotion to, we have actually two promotions. One is that if you join us or upgrade with us, you'll get a free KNFB Reader uh, Enterprise application. And that's a $99 application that we'll just give you. The other thing that we will offer, so if you already have that, we just got approved to give a uh, promotion of $100 of Uber rides. So 10, 10 rides, $10 off each ride. So 
really come by and see me because I can save you money and get you where you need to go and help you connect to your friends and all that kind of thing. So um, I'm very happy. My role at Sprint is clearly outreach to the blind and low vision community. And it's part of our accessibility team. And I'm responsible for a group called Sprint Vision. So I have contractors um, throughout the country who are blind or low vision like myself. And they go to events and do things um, like I do. They're actually going to that event that that other um, agency small group has down in Florida next week. Um, But I chose you. So here I am. (laughs) I want to thank you. Come by Booth 21 and say hello. Thanks for everything. Thank you, Kelly. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to see see you. you. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We will... Um, recognize and introduce our um, a next Emerald sponsor. We're going to jump to um, Uber. If you need a ride, here he is. No, <laughs> I want to I want to introduce to you a friend of ACB who helps us with uh, a lot of some of the advocacy issues. And I'm sure he'll mention some of those. But he's been a good man to work with. I want to welcome and introduce to you Malcolm Glenn, the public policy person for Uber out of yeah. Washington, D.C. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Malcolm. You. Thanks. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. You know, it's funny to get up here as a representative from one company and tell you to go to the booth of another company, but... As you just heard, go to Sprint, get your $100 in Uber credits if you can. Make sure you go to their booth. Well, um, as Kim mentioned, my name is Malcolm Glenn, and I manage a lot of our relationships with third-party organizations across the country. I'm based out of Washington, D.C. This is actually my third consecutive ACB convention, and so thank you. And it's always exciting to visit with you uh, in various places across the country. One of the great things about ACB is it helps me see parts of the country that I otherwise wouldn't see. Uh, I'd never been to Minneapolis. I'd never been to Reno. I do know St. Louis, but it's always nice to be back. Uh, I spoke to some of you all in February um, in the D.C. area uh, about some of the work that we've been making on self-driving cars. And um, there's been a lot that has happened since we last spoke in February. So I wanted to give you all a bit of an update on some of the progress that's happening there. In February, I talked a lot about something that folks in this room are very familiar with, which is the potential impact, the positive impact that self-driving cars can have on everyone's lives from a mobility standpoint. Um, The potential outcomes are quite significant. But... About a month after I spoke to you all, we suffered a really significant setback in the testing and the progress that we were making. Um, As I'm sure most of you all heard, one of our cars in Tempe, Arizona, actually struck and killed a pedestrian taking a walking across an unlighted road, uh, not at a crosswalk at night. Uh, It was an absolute tragedy. Obviously, it was a tragedy for the victim. It was a tragedy for her family. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing that you hope never happens, and we were horrified to see that it took place. Um, and it also hit our team really hard. 
these folks are going to work every day trying to build technology that they think is going to make people's lives better and something like this happens. And so we felt like it was really incumbent upon us to respond in the right way because the inevitability of testing new technology at scale with the ramifications of something like self-driving technology is that there are going to be incidents like this. And so we immediately grounded our entire fleet in each of our testing locations. And we were doing testing in Arizona and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as well as San Francisco. And all of our testing vehicles continue to be grounded today. Uh, but it's a, major, it's a major step back for us. And it's tough because we're not sure exactly what happened with the technology. We know a little bit about what happened with the safety driver, but we don't know exactly what happened with the technology yet. So what we're doing is we're cooperating with the two major federal investigations, the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency and the National Transportation Safety Board. Um, and hopefully once those investigations are concluded, relatively soon we'll be able to say more about exactly what happened um, with the crash there. Um, but we do know a couple of things about what happened with the driver, and I think it's illustrative of why we're in this space in the first place. Um, all of our cars were operating with the safety driver behind the wheel, and the instructions that we give to our safety drivers are to be alert at all times, to have your hands on the wheel, to be paying attention to the road at all times, even if the cars are in autonomous mode. Um, and what we found out from an investigation from the city of Tempe was that there was the, the safety driver was actually watching a show on her phone when the crash took place. Her eyes were off the road, um, and her eyes were off the road not just immediately before, but several minutes before the accident took place. Um, obviously, this is completely and utterly unacceptable and completely at odds with the way that we teach our safety drivers to go about operating these autonomous vehicles, whether they're in manual mode or in autonomous mode. But I think it speaks volumes about why we're doing this in the first place, which is because people driving make lots and lots and lots of mistakes. I'm sure you all have heard this statistic, but 94% of the car crashes that take place are the result of a mistake on behalf of the driver. 94%. 1.3 million people die in car crashes as pedestrians or drivers every single year, notwithstanding the tens of thousands of people who also die in pedestrian accidents every year as a result of a mistake that a person made. And so this gives a little bit of an insight into the thinking about how we plan to approach self-driving when we do get back on the road. I don't want to get too much into the details of the different levels of autonomy, but essentially we believe that the real value is not necessarily in the so-called level three autonomy where, you know, people have some control over the cars and, you know, there's, you know, people have heard a lot about the Tesla autopilot situation. That actually is not where we want to go. We want to go to giving everyone the opportunity to engage with autonomy, regardless of whether they're able to drive a car or not through our fleet model. And listen, we obviously have a lot of work to do. The tech is clearly not in the place where it needs to be. But I think striving for level four and level five autonomy, where the human element is taken out of the equation, I think is the utmost safest outcome. And that's the outcome that we're looking for. And again, there are a lot of things that our technology still has to solve for. Um, and we have a lot to do on that front. But I think we've learned a lot since what happened in March. 
There's been a really, I think, positive response from lots of folks across the autonomous vehicle industry, both tech companies and automakers, as well as other folks who are involved in the space. Um, and they're really, really committed to recognizing that while this might seem like an isolated incident, ultimately, if we're going to continue to test this technology in the way that we need to to get it to the point where everyone in this room can ultimately use it, there are going to be issues. There are going to be crashes. And unfortunately, this probably isn't the only time that a person is going to die. Um, but the coalitions and the industry members where we're members have recognized that we need to get to the bottom of this. Um, and it's less about the fact that this incident took place, but more about how we respond to these incidents. Not about the fact that we made a mistake and the mistake was quite significant, but how do we respond to these mistakes? And this has meant some real soul searching for us, which I think we're doing now, and we know we have to improve and also find the right regulatory framework for how this is going to work. And so we can't compromise on any of those things. We can't compromise on safety. So we look forward to working with you all, particularly as these conversations come up in the states about how to make sure that we get this right. Uh, and when I was with you all last year in Reno, I talked a little bit about the commitment that we've made not to roll out these cars past the pilot stage without making them accessible to people who are blind or have low vision. We continue to stay committed to that. The one thing I would say is it might take a little longer just because we've had to stop a lot of our testing over the last number of months. So that's still going to happen. It might happen at a slightly later stage. Um, but we're excited when we do get back on the road to be able to engage with you all and continue the conversations that we had been having around accessibility. Um, and we understand the impact that this technology can have on your community, and we're taking that responsibility very seriously. And as I mentioned, again, we have a long way to get there, but I hope you all will work with us to help develop regulations that pave the way for these vehicles in a smart way and in a safe way. Um, I've had some conversations with ACB leadership, particularly folks like Eric and Tony, about convening a group of leaders from the disability community at our main testing facility in Pittsburgh to meet with engineers and designers to discuss in depth what we're thinking and how we're talking about accessibility. Um, the accident in Tempe has pushed back that timeline, um, but we will absolutely get that group together in Pittsburgh sometime, hopefully before the end of the year, to make sure that we're having a real dialogue between our engineers who are designing the technology and folks in the communities like the community from ACB to make sure that we're getting this right. And finally, I, I've talked mostly today about self-driving cars. Um, I think that's uh, an amazing opportunity and future potential way to transform mobility. But I know we have a lot of work to do on our current platform today. It's far from perfect. I know it's made some significant changes over the years. Um, but we still know we have drivers who aren't always accepting service animals. We know that we still have parts of the app, both in voiceover and in talkback, that are not always easy to navigate. Um, and I'll just mention in closing that I think we have a greater commitment to solving these problems that we've ever had. Um, our new CEO, and I've had conversations directly with him, um, cares a lot about accessibility and has had some really valuable, important meetings one-to-one -one with members of the disability community to talk through their concerns and make sure that he's getting that message to everyone internally to make sure that we're solving these problems. 
And so we're not perfect, but I think the commitment that we have to this work is greater and more significant than it's ever been. Um, and so stay tuned, I'd say, um, because even though we might not be moving quite as fast as you would always like, we are moving in the right direction. Um, and so I just want to thank you all again for the opportunity to meet with you. Um, I very much enjoy the conversations that we have, and I look forward to our continued improvement. Thanks so much. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Malcolm. That was great. Appreciate it. All right. We, um, we found the right channel, and we were able to tune in, and we've identified where Charter Communications was. So, so I'm happy to say that um, we get to hear from Peter Kucharavi, maybe, uh, Senior Manager for Accessibility at Charter Communications in Colorado. Peter? Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, nice, nice to meet, to meet you. you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me okay? Am I too close? Oh, that's good. I am so proud and excited about the fact that I am sharing this stage with other companies that are investing into accessibility. Ten years ago, it was a very different landscape, wasn't it? This is an exciting time to be blind, I think. Boy, it's like, nobody's heard that one, have they? <laughs> well, my name is Peter Kuchidavi, and um, I am a senior accessibility manager uh, at Charter Communications on the product design team that's based at Denver. And we are so proud to be sponsors once again of the ACB convention this year. And we're also really excited that we're moving into a new era of accessibility that we're calling universal design. And we're hoping to enter into a new kind of partnership with the American Council of the Blind and and members of the blind... I'm going to raise this microphone a little bit. I'm, I'm bending down. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're, we're really excited to, to be giving Charter a facelift, in a way. Our websites, our products. And to that end, we've hired over 20 people on our accessibility team. Yeah. That has really, um, really been rewarding to see the growth. Uh, not a lot of companies invest that much into accessibility, but we've heard you. We've heard your concerns about our products, and we've taken the right step forward, we believe. And universal design really is a way of designing products, services, environments, and human interaction that recognizes and celebrates differences by starting with our similarities and by active listening. And it's a way to create products that speak to the common denominator that underlies the entire human experience. It's making products, services, and interactions that we all can appreciate and enjoy. 
And that's what we're hoping to do. We've started by generating some excitement around universal design. I, it's been my pleasure to, to be uh, on the front lines of that at Charter. And we've really energized our product and design and development teams so much so that earlier this year, our video product team for an entire quarter, three months straight, did nothing but accessibility work. Yeah. These are, these are people who have never spent any time focusing on accessibility, as I'm sure was evident in the products that preceded us. And earlier this year, our mobile app was transformed into one that we believe is the most accessible video streaming app of its kind on the market today. You can come by our booth and check it out. We also have a research session this afternoon from 1 to 5. I think there's a few slots still available if you'd like to participate um, and give us some feedback on that app. We've traveled around uh, blind communities and we've gotten such wonderful feedback. And thank you all, those of you who have stopped by and given us such positive feedback so far during this convention on that app. We're also really excited about the announcement that I'm sure you heard during the Apple WWDC conference that we uh, will be bringing Spectrum TV to the Apple platform. Yeah. We're really, really excited about that. I know as a blind person myself, I really enjoy a lot of Apple products for their intuitive accessibility features. And so looking forward to that uh, release later this year. Yeah, later this year, soon, sooner than some, some thought. And just to uh, be mindful of time, I want, I want to brag about one more product that I'm particularly proud of mostly because I was responsible for overseeing it. And that's our Spectrum Mobile product line that just launched on June 30th during our, our convention here. And Spectrum Mobile is a fourth line of products that we're bringing to Charter and its mobile phone service. So if you're an existing customer, you qualify to, to get a mobile phone service. And if you're not an existing customer, um, well, if we're in your area, you can bundle it up with internet or cable and you get outrageously good deals, but we won't get into that because we're talking about accessibility, right? And our team, the reason why this is particularly uh, a, a highlight is this product started development after the growth of our team. Now. I want to take one step back and tell you that over, in these over 20 members of our accessibility team, more than half of us are blind or visually impaired. Yeah. Some years ago, I was an employment specialist for the blind and visually impaired, and I'm very proud of that, um, having that background. But we believe that universal design 
accessible products, or more importantly, products that really reflect the user's needs are best developed by a team of people that actually reflect the users that we're looking to serve. And because Spectrum Mobile started its development after the growth of our team, the mobile applications that customers with Spectrum Mobile will be using to manage their account are fully accessible. With, yeah, please. These are, these are beautiful applications. I, I really enjoy using them. I really enjoy the navigation on them with the text-to-speech engines. They work seamlessly. And, um, and that's because it wasn't something that came afterward. We heard from Chase earlier today that that waterfall design system, you know, where you're just tagging on accessibility after the fact, uh, that being Russian, we call it kaka. <laughs> <laughs> That is not the way to design accessible products. Accessibility has to be a part of design. It has to be woven into the fabric of the culture. And that is what we are doing. So on that beautiful applause, I'm going to bring it to a wrap while I'm ahead, right? But I'm going to tell you that there is so much work that we still need to do. You know that. We know that. We, we are changing the culture. We are lifting our products to be more accessible. And moving forward, every new web page, every new application that we develop will be what we like to call born accessible. Thank you all. Thank you, so Thank you Peter. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> Is Zach Bastian here? All right. He doesn't appear that he is. So um, as a Diamond sponsor, I'd just like to recognize Verizon for all they do and the work we do with them for accessibility. Thank you. I want to uh, acknowledge and introduce for um, this morning's ACB Angel presentation um, uh, for Jill O'Connell from California, 1922 to 2017. And to speak about Jill is my friend and colleague, Destine Noller from Arizona. Desi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's my, my honor and privilege to be here to really celebrate a life incredibly well-lived. But before I share my remarks that I have prepared for this, I just wanted to say that if Jill were here today, she would say that everyone needs to stop by the MMS booth and contribute. Because Jill was a firm believer in that. She did not think 
that just paying your chapter dues and your affiliate dues was enough. And it was because of her that Don and I started contributing because she really shamed me into it. She said, <laughs> she said, it is your responsibility. The council has so much work to do and they need money in order to do it. Well, we can't give very much, but we do it every month. And so I urge you all to do that on behalf of Jill's memory. <laughs> Jill Lorraine Peden O'Connell, September 22, 1922 to April 4, 2017. Jill was born in Bakersfield, California, but by the time she started school, her family had moved to Los Angeles. She was legally blind, but started out in a public school with her sighted twin brother Jack, who was expected to help her. For pretty obvious reasons, this plan did not work out well, and she was eventually transferred to another school in Los Angeles where other blind children were being taught. I was not able to find out what school that was. Um, There sadly aren't that many people from that time left, so I wasn't able to find out, so that's why I described it that way. (laughs) Later, she transferred to the California School for the Blind in Berkeley. She attended public high school while still living there. She stayed at the School for the Blind and went out for day school at the high school. After high school, she attended the University of California, Berkeley, where she graduated with a degree in social work. For a short time, she pursued a career in that field, but ultimately decided she was not suited to that profession. In the late 1940s, she married Terry O'Connell, a blind man she had known since their school days in Berkeley. Together, they raised three-sided children, two girls and a boy. Jill was a very busy mom. She was involved in PTA and led both boy and girl scout troops. She and Terry strove to give their children the best possible childhoods they could provide. They went on many backpacking and camping expeditions, which Terry planned for them down to the most minute detail. It was said that these expeditions were not Jill's favorite activities. But she always went along. All three of the O'Connell children grew up to be successful adults with children of their own. Besides her children, Jill is survived by four grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. When Jill's children were grown, she became a medical transcriptionist, a field that she worked in until her retirement in the early 2000s. She worked for many years at the VA hospital at Long Beach before moving to Humboldt County in Northern California, where she did private contract work for several area doctors. Jill was an active member of ACB for many years and was also a member of several affiliates. She was a member of the Visually Impaired Secretarial Transcribers Association, which was then known as VISTA. 
the Braille Revival League, and the Library Users of America. Her greatest passions were reading and Braille literacy. Though she could see well enough to use a CCTV for things like reading mail, she always preferred to read everything she could lay her hands on in Braille. Her Braille Note Apex was one of her most prized possessions, and she both marveled and delighted in the fact that it brought her online access to more books than she would ever finish reading in her lifetime. One of her proudest accomplishments was uh, tutoring an elementary school child who was losing his sight and struggling to learn Braille, to become a proficient Braille reader, and ultimately to love Braille. That child grew into an extremely successful young man who graduated from Stanford University and is now working for Apple in the area of Braille accessibility as a developer and programmer. He and his family attribute his success completely to Jill, and she was privileged to attend his Stanford graduation as a part of his family. He outfitted a MacBook for her that she used in her last few years of life, and they remained fast friends until her death. I met Jill in 1978 when her husband Terry and I attended the same guide dog class where we received sister dogs. This gave us a special bond and reason to stay in touch. I was a college student then, and having attended public schools all my life, had never known any blind adults. I spent many weekends at the O'Connell home, enjoying their company and learning about life from a blind adult perspective. It is because of Jill that I learned about ACB. She submitted my name to Bob Campbell, who was then president of the American Council of the Blind of California, today known as California Council of the Blind, as a candidate to attend the national convention in the summer, I'm sorry, the national convention that summer as the student representative from California. I was chosen and attended my first convention in St. Louis in 1981. For me, it was a life-changing experience. I remain a member in good standing today, and I owe it all to Jill, because my first convention was in St. Louis. I am exceedingly delighted to be able to present Jill's ACB angel here. Rest in peace, my dearest friend. There are not adequate words to thank you for all you have given to my life and to the lives of so many others. I miss you every day. Thank you. Nice job. That was great. Thank you. Uh (laughs) All right. Thank you. All right. I'd like to... um, introduce the um, presiding officer of the day who will handle the agenda moving forward 
And that is Mr. Ray Campbell, a CB secretary from Glen Ellen, Illinois. Ray? Yep, right here. <laughs> okay. By way of audio description, ooh, back off. He raises the microphone up a little bit. Good morning, ACB. Are we having a good time in St. Louis or what? Well, I am proud to be from the neighboring state next door here, the great state of Illinois. Um, and uh, to, to all my Cardinal fans, friends, go Cubs! <laughs> all right, maybe we better move on before I get in more trouble. Um, before we begin, is Laura Generelli up here? I am. Oh, of course she is. Um, hold on just a second. Okay, we, um, before we, uh, as we move, we're a little behind schedule, so I want to get going, otherwise I was going to tell a little story, but um, we'll save that. So, we've come to one of my favorite parts of the convention, um, the time when we get to hear from one of the people who spends many various moments with us, whether it's when we're doing something in the kitchen, whether it's we're sitting out on the patio or wherever with a cold drink, or maybe even when we're going to sleep. One of the wonderful people who bring the joy of literature and reading to all of us are talking book narrators. Yes, yes, yes. This morning we have the privilege of hearing from a, a narrator who works for the National Library Service in Washington, D.C., and has been a talking book narrator for many, many years and done some great work. And I'm going to shut up and let her take over and tell you all about herself. It gives me great pleasure to give, let's give an ACV welcome to Laura Gianarelli. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are going to make me cry. I, I spend my working life in a soundproof room, reading into a microphone, through the glass, to one person who has a set of headphones on and another copy of the book and keeps me honest. You said these instead of those, or are you sure you looked up that word and know how to pronounce it? Or you skipped a sentence and... There's a noise I heard from the lamp and all that good stuff. So it's, in a sense, very solitary work. And it is my distinct honor today to be here with so many of you who are the patrons of the Talking Books program of the National Library Service for the Blind. I know that I speak for all of my fellow narrators when I say that we really love the work that we do and that we find it sort of um, amazing that we actually get paid to do work that we love so much and that we know is appreciated by the consumers out there who are you. Um, 
I literally grew up as a narrator. I've been doing this work since 1979 when I was 22 years old. So, so you do the math. <laughs> um, this morning I thought I would sort of personalize things a bit and tell you all a little bit about how I became a narrator. This is only my story, but I know that every one of my fellow narrators has their own journey that brought them to talking books, but this is mine. Um, when I was in high school, my parents felt that it was my job to go to school and get good grades. So I did not have an after-school job like some of my friends. I just went to school, did my homework, went out to play, that sort of thing. Um, after high school, I went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and got a double major in drama and French, neither of which is really going to lead to a, a very lucrative career. Um, my first job out of college was at Only Theater, which is now Maryland's summer theater, Maryland State Theater. Yes, yay, Maryland! Um, but having graduated from Catholic U, I was, oddly enough, not asked to star in a play on Broadway immediately. And so I took the first job that was offered me, which was working in the box office at Only. And I had the great good fortune there to... Um, encounter someone who had been a grad student when I was an undergrad at Catholic U, and he was starring in Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He was oh, Joseph. Yes, yes. And very great show. And he came to the box office one day to arrange tickets for, I don't know, his mother, his grandmother, somebody. And he said, you know, Laura, you have a very nice voice. You should work where I worked while I was in grad school if you're going to stay in the area. I said, well, where's that? And he said, well, the, the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, it's in D.C. It's right near Catholic U. And he said, I would work there. He said, you know, I would work there a part-time schedule. It's very flexible. It's great for an actor. So long story short, I auditioned. And about, I guess about a year later, the government moving at a somewhat glacial pace, <laughs> I, I, was, I, yes, I was actually hired and began working at NLS. I would like to back up, however, and tell you a little bit about me and growing up and what gave me Without realizing it, I was uh, uh, assembling the tools that allowed me to become what I hope is a good narrator. I'm an Air Force brat. I was born, a proud Air Force brat, I was born at Bowling Air Force Base in October of 1956 in a Quonset hut, which was the maternity ward annex at the time. Um, by heritage, I am Italian-American. Both sets of grandparents emigrated from Italy near the beginning of the 20th century. They went to Barry, Vermont, yay Vermont, um, because the Rock of Ages granite quarries were there. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a vein of, of granite that runs miles deep, and we will never finish quarrying that. Um, my mother was born in November of 1919. And my dad, in January of 1920, 
And I always thought when I was a kid it was so romantic. They were born across the street from one another. And they played together as children. But in 1927, Barry, Vermont had a big flood, the the great flood of 1927. And the stone sheds where my grandfathers both worked, working on the granite, were flooded and closed for an indefinite period of time. So needing to make a living, my mother's family moved to New York City and my father's family moved to Connecticut. My paternal grandfather started a granite um, monument business. And my grandfather on my mother's side worked down on the docks, cutting the big slabs of marble that would come over from Carrara, Italy. Um, they, my parents got back together again years later when my father was already in the Air Force and my mom was working as a secretary in New York City. They married in 1955 on July 2nd. So yesterday was their 53rd anniversary. They, they have both, they've both passed on, but were they here, it would have been their 53rd wedding anniversary. Now, why do I tell you about my parents and my grandparents? Well, part of what makes me a storyteller and gives me good diction are my grandmothers. My father's mother actually taught herself to read and write English by reading the newspaper. Uh, Yeah, she was pretty smart. She was pretty smart. And she did the books for my grandfather's business. But as she got older, so when I was a girl, she became increasingly hard of hearing. So if I wanted Nona Mary to understand what the heck I was saying, I had to speak very clearly and distinctly, and I had to speak up. So in all my years, both behind the mic and as an actor on stage, no one has ever had to tell me to speak louder. (laughs) Never. My other grandmother really never learned to speak English, even though she became an American citizen and lived here for, I don't know, 65 or 70 years. But she never really learned English. So when I was a child, she would live with us three or four months out of the year, and it was my job to translate what was on television. To, oh yes, oh yes, it was my job to explain that, you know, on what's happening on Bonanza or on Lawrence Welk. Oh, Lawrence Welk. Yes, oh yeah, oh, we always watched Lawrence Welk. Every week, every week. But, you know, I would have to explain when we were watching Bonanza, allora, little Joe è innamorata di quella ragazza, ma a lei piace Hoss di più. Which is, little Joe is in love with that girl, but she likes Hoss better. So I had to learn how to distill the plot points and how to explain things clearly and Um, cleanly so that she would understand what was going on and I would still be able to watch the show that I loved because I was in love with little Joe. (laughs) The other thing that sort of fed into my becoming an actor was that when I was very, very small, 
My mother used to play let's pretend with us in the kitchen with the pots and pans. And, you know, I distinctly remember getting a group of my little friends together out, outside and, like, putting on our own production of Babes in Toyland, which I expect I had just seen at the movie theater on the base. But, you know, I, I sort of, without realizing it, my parents were preparing me to be a performing artist. I did my first play in the third grade. I was the third good fairy in Sleeping Beauty. It was also my introduction to the tragedy of being an actor, which is that I was certain when they had auditions that I was going to play Sleeping Beauty. But I wasn't. I wasn't even the first good fairy or the second good fairy. I was the third good fairy, and I had one line. And then I got the mumps and missed the performance altogether. I, fast forwarding, I had a wonderful drama teacher in high school, Mrs. Sugarman, who instilled in me the radical concept that I could actually make a living performing. Um, My mother, who was wonderful, wonderful and delightful and, and unfortunately died when I was 19, but she was, yeah, she had a, a massive stroke. Um, but she was a, a little more on the conservative, you know, always have something to fall back on side. And she wanted to meet me to be a secretary or a teacher so that I would always be able to make a living and was a little scandalized when I wanted to go to Catholic U and be a drama major. <laughs> um, but, but both she and my dad stood behind me and I, I was able with the support of that teacher to sort of imagine a life for myself that was not behind a typewriter. I've always loved reading, always, always. So when that friend in the box office at Only Theater said you should audition to work narrating books, I was fascinated and intrigued. Nowadays, and for at least the last 15 years or so, I help train narrators at the National Library Service. So, you know, when we get some newbie in who's just been hired, I usually spend some time working with them. And I always say that rule one for doing the work that we do is that you have to love to read. The work we do is hard. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that go into making a talking book and making it sound relaxed and easy and clear and clean and all those other good things with correct pronunciations and so forth. And it's hard. You really have to love to read if you're going to stick with it. I've seen many people come and go in my 39 years at the National Library Service. And the ones who don't stay, nine times out of ten, it's because they realize, wow, this is hard. And, you know, I'm not all that wild about Books, So, yeah, I think I'll go, like, wait tables or something. It's easier money. Um, We record at NLS as a team. There's a narrator behind the microphone, which is the, you know, the voice that you hear when you get a book from your library. But there's also the unsung heroes, the monitor, which is a job that I also do, which is the engineer, the person who nowadays sits at the computer. Used to be when I started, it was a reel-to-reel telex tape recorder. But, yeah, we remember those, right? 
Um, yeah, there was no undo button on the telex tape recorder. If you made a mistake, you were sunk. Um, but the monitor not only stops me from mispronunciations or suggests that, you know, the general in chapter three had a German accent and now he doesn't, so maybe we should fix that. Um, but they also make sure all the levels are correct and that there's no extraneous noises or the lamp isn't making a buzzing sound that will cause QA to lose their minds and reject the book and go, oh my God, there's a horrible noise. Um, There's that person. And then there is the reviewer who, when the narrator monitor have finished with the recording session, they... The reviewer um, listens to the whole book and marks down all the mistakes that we made. And not just things like, you know, you said negligee instead of kangaroo. Um, I owe that one to Ray Hagen, for those of you who have ever listened to a Ray Hagen book. That was his favorite um, phrase for a mistake. For what, what, are you, what am I supposed to write down when I'm reviewing? Well, if I said negligee instead of kangaroo, write that down. Um, but also stylistic things, like the he said angrily suggests that maybe the character is angry. Would you like to listen to this and perhaps make it um, a little more angry? And those are the kinds of things that when they come back to us in the, in the booth to you know, do the fixes, we don't necessarily do every correction. We might get that correction that says, you know, he said angrily, shouldn't that be more angry? And go, yeah, no, I think it's fine the way it is. Then in our studio, it gets yet another review, a 30% review, where another reviewer listens to parts of it and then listens to all the corrections to make sure the levels are right. And then we do more corrections. So only then does it go to QA. So our books are about as faithful to the print text as they can possibly be so that the product that you get when you check out a Library of Congress recording are about as high as anywhere. And I would put them up against the commercial product any day. I was, I was trained by the great Bill West and Ray Hagen, who taught me lots of stuff. Yeah, the great Ray, Ray is a wonderful, wonderful narrator, retired now. And Bill West was an amazing engineer at NLS, and he was also a patron of the program. He was blind, and he would come down to the studio and talk with us and from the time I was, I mean, I was only 22 when I started, so they were lessons instilled early. The work that we do really is translation. We are translating material from the printed page into an audio format to give you, the listener, an experience as close as possible to the print text. So when there is blank space on the page, that tells me I have to pause because the sighted reader sees that blank space and knows that there's a change of time or place or we're changing the subject 
But, you know, after that blank space is a new part of the story, and it requires a pause. But the way Bill phrased it, that we were translating, has always stuck with me. People often ask me how the books get assigned. How do I get the books that I read? I think it's different in all of the different contract studios, but in my studio at NLS, our studio director, Celeste Lawson, usually offers a narrator two or three choices to pick from, maybe a novel or two or a nonfiction. And if you've spent like the last two months reading a very challenging nonfiction book where they go to five different countries and there's all kinds of technical language, she might offer you a thriller or a Harlequin romance sort of as a, as a change of pace, as a little reward for all the work that you did. Narrators are responsible for doing our own research. So I always say, in fact, we used to have a sign in the studio before our recent renovation that said, pronunciation is to us what spelling is to a print editor. So we, we really make a huge effort to pronounce things correctly. We have shelves and shelves of reference books that we take advantage of. And of course, also the internet has like changed everything. I just recently read a nonfiction book and I, I sent the author a Facebook message asking her how she pronounces her name and amazingly, she got back to me. So, you know, Facebook, YouTube, YouTube is amazing because you go on YouTube and, you know, you, you type in the author's name and say interview and then you find them on Jay Leno or on some, some little uh, radio station interview and hopefully the interviewer says, and welcome, Laura Gianarelli, so that then I know how they say their name. Sometimes you have to listen through a lot of interview in order to maybe hear the name. But all those um, tools online have helped us be able to find the correct pronunciations. You also have to be a little leery because there are websites like Forvo, which are um, places kind of like Wikipedia where any, any old Joe can like get online and say, yes, it said Laura Guyanarelli. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. But you, you sort of learn to know when it's either a robot voice or when it's clearly like someone with an egregious non-Spanish accent pronouncing a Spanish word. It's like, okay, I know, that's not right. But it's there online. You have to, you have to pick and choose. You have to be discerning. Um, the technology, speaking of the robot voice... We are getting to a place where text-to-speech has become and is becoming increasingly um, sophisticated. And they're actually doing tests now at NLS about the possibility of having, having Siri, so to speak, narrate whole books. No. Well, thank you. Um, the, the final little part of my, my talk here is a, is a, um, uh, I can't think of the right word, but is, is in favor of the live narrator. Pro live narrator. When I, 
when I was hired to do this work, about 10 years in, I started going to different states to talk to volunteer narrators around the country and sort of give them tips on how to, uh, how to do this work, how to become better narrators. And I always say that a talking book is really just a fancy electronic way for me to read you a story. That human connection is very important. Now, I will say that there is a place for text to speech. One of our wonderful narrators who just actually, uh, I helped work on this project, um, the library studio, the National Library Service Studio, just did a huge project creating the talking book of John Lewis's graphic novel, March. I wrote the script, you know, looking at the pictures and saying, okay, in the next frame, John is feeding the chickens in the yard of his parents' house. And he says, and it took me weeks and weeks to write the script because it's a three-volume graphic novel. Chuck Young and Julian Thompson did the recording, Chuck narrating and Julian engineering the recording, and Michael Rosado, who is also a wonderful narrator, um, did the review and marked all the mistakes and also marked places where I had perhaps misinterpreted the picture, like that's really supposed to be um, Ralph Abernathy and not John Lewis that he's talking to, um, or that's Martin Luther King and not Malcolm X. Um, and, and, you know, made those kind of very minute corrections. And that, you know, that's a special project where the, the human factor is so important. But Chuck also, several years ago, narrated a really wonderful book about the Negro Leagues of Baseball. And it was a great book. If, you, if you're interested in baseball, and particularly in the Negro Leagues, it was a wonderful, exhaustive um, study of that. But at the back were about 50 pages of that which baseball fans love and I do not. All the statistics, everybody's batting average, all the RBIs, and Chuck had to read every statistic. We read every chart, and I would happily cede that to Siri. Um, Because because certainly the, the patrons of the Talking Books program want access to the same stats that their sighted baseball fan friends have, but it was a bear to read every word of it. It took us like two weeks of, of, you know, work. And that I would happily give to the robot voice. But the love scenes in Dr. Zhivago? Yeah. Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs? Yeah, not so much. Fifty Shades of Grey? Yes. Um... I would like to share, because I don't want to take all of your morning, I would like to share one funny research story and then one story to uh, complete my point about the human connection of the work that we do. The funny story is one of my husband's favorites, and he's here. Hi, sweetie. (laughs) Um, We actually met in the recording studio, so... I was working in Bethesda at Potomac Talking Books, and um, my husband was too. It wasn't my husband at the time, and, and we met and had our first date while we were both working there. So 
So the National Library Service brought me love, too. Um, the, his, his favorite funny story is one that I learned in um, oh, Indiana, I think, when I was working with volunteer narrators, and we were talking about goofy mispronunciations, and they shared with me that, you know, as volunteers, they often work in the evening after work, and the narrator and the monitor are alone in the studio, and they were reading this novel, which was British, and, you know, a period piece, sort of Charles Dickens-ish. And they came across this phrase and had no idea what it was supposed to be. G-O-D-E-L-P-U-S. That old Godelpus. Uh, yes, yes, good old Godelpus. And that's what they guessed. They looked everywhere, they couldn't find it, and so in the recording they said Godelpus. And, and yes, and the reviewer... Uh, gently informed them that, well, it was supposed to be, you know, sort of in the British accent, and it was meant to be God help us. God help us. <laughs> and the, the heartwarming close to my little talk is some years ago, probably about 15, 18 years ago, I went to speak to the Friends of the Alexandria Library. And the gentleman who ran that organization at the time was blind. And he and his wife picked me up at Metro. And as we drove to the venue, he was telling me how much talking books meant to him. And he said something I never forgot. He had been blind from birth. And he said, when I was a kid, Alexander Scorby was my best friend. Because I spent, yes, he was an amazing narrator. Let's hear it for Alexander yeah. Scorby. He said, I spent more time alone in my room with Alexander Scorby reading books to me than I did with my friends outside. And I think that's something that Siri will never be able to talk. Amen. Do we have time for me to read something? Or? Um, yes, we have okay. time for you to read a okay. passage. I have a very brief passage that I'd like to share with you. It's only about three minutes. It is from, it's an excerpt from a book called American Food Writing, edited by Molly O'Neill. So all you foodies out there, it's a fabulous book that I narrated some years ago. Has recipes, has stories from all the great writers. And this is from, to bring it back to my personal life, from one of my mother's very favorite books, My Antonia by Willa Cather. Mrs. Shimerda grew more calm and reasonable before our visit was over, and while Antonia translated, put in a word now and then on her own account. The woman had a quick ear and caught up phrases whenever she heard English spoken. As we rose to go, she opened her wooden chest and brought out a bag made of bed ticking, about as long as a flour sack and half as wide, stuffed full of something. At the sight of it, the crazy boy began to smack his lips. Then Mrs. Shimerda opened the bag and stirred the contents with her hand. It gave out a salty, earthy smell, very pungent, even among the other odors of that cave they lived in. She measured a teacupful, 
tied it up in a bit of sacking, and presented it ceremoniously to my grandmother. For cook, she announced, little now, be very much when cook, spreading out her hands to indicate that the pint would swell to a gallon. Very good. You no have in this country all things for eat better in my country. Maybe so, Mrs. Shimerda, grandmother said dryly. I can't say, but I prefer our bread to yours myself. Antonia undertook to explain. This very good, Mrs. Burden. She clasped her hands as if she could not express how good. It make very much when you cook, like what my mama say, cook with rabbit, cook with chicken, in the gravy, oh, so good. All the way home, grandmother and Jake talked about how easily good Christian people could forget that they were their brother's keepers. I will say, Jake, some of our brothers and sisters are hard to keep. Where's a body to begin with these people? They're wanting in everything, and most of all in horse sense. Nobody can give them that, I guess. That night, while grandmother was getting supper, we opened the package Mrs. Shimerda had given her. It was full of little brown chips that looked like the shavings of some root. They were as light as feathers, and the most noticeable thing about them was their penetrating earthy odor. We could not determine whether they were animal or vegetable. They might be dried meat from some queer beast, Jim. They ain't dried fish, and they never grew on stalk or vine. I'm afraid of them. Anyhow, I shouldn't want to eat anything that has been shut up for months with old clothes and goose pillows. She threw the package into the stove. But I bit off a corner of one of the chips I held in my hand and chewed it tentatively. I never forgot the strange taste, though it was many years before I knew that those little brown shavings which the Shimerdas had brought so far and treasured so jealously were dried mushrooms. They had been gathered probably in some deep bohemian forest. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for the work you do. Yeah, it was great. Now, there's no way Siri could do that, could she? <laughs> Laura, thank you very much. Um, unfortunately, Unfortunately, we are not going to have time for questions right now. However, Laura will be with Library Users of America at 2.45 this afternoon, and I believe that's Midway 1. Somebody can... Midway 9, okay. I was only 8 off. Um, But at Midway 9, 2.45 this afternoon, you'll have a chance to get up close and personal with Laura. She's a very, very nice lady uh, in person, and we love to hear in her voice. Okay. Here's what we're going to do before break. And yes, I'm going to give you a break today. Or I'm sure going to try, as long as you're good. Um, okay. So your, your program says that we have somebody from uh, 
Business Leadership Network that's going to speak to us, the U.S. Business Leadership Network. Unfortunately, Jill Houghton was not able to join us today. So what we're going to do is we are going to do a, uh, we have a Constitution and Bylaw Amendment to read. We have a resolution that we're going to do. Then we're going to do RDC announcements. So RDC folks and Janet and uh, Carla, if you need, if you have anything for Minimal, get to microphones. And then we'll do a door prize, and then we're going to go on break. So, now your break may be a little shorter than 15 minutes, but we'll try to give you your 15 minutes of, of fame, or break, I should say. So here we go. So to read the... Um, First Constitution and Bylaws Amendment, and this is a first reading, so there's no discussion at this point. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend and the chair of ACB's Constitution and Bylaws Committee from the great state of Indiana, John Huffman. Thank you, Ray. Yes. The first proposal that we are going to read... Uh, which has been labeled as Proposal 2018-1, is a proposal uh, to amend Article 3, Membership, Voting, and Dues, to clarify the status of junior members. Current language reads as follows, Article 3, uh, membership, voting, and dues. Then we go to section A, which is membership, and it currently reads as follows. Members of this organization shall be of two classes, voting and non-voting. Voting members shall be affiliate organizations. Their voting members, life members, and members at large of the American Council of the Blind. Non-voting members shall be the individuals and entities holding sustaining memberships and those persons holding junior memberships at large. Now, if we eventually vote to uh, accept, accept the, the amendment, the language would read as follows. Again, it's still uh, Article 3, Section A, Membership. And would read as follows. Members of this organization shall be of two classes, voting and non-voting. Members, or excuse me, yes, uh, voting members shall, shall be affiliate organizations. Their voting members, life members, members at large of the American Council of the Blind. Non-voting members shall be the individuals and entities holding sustaining memberships and those persons holding junior memberships, whether at large or joining as junior members of an affiliate. Um, that ends the first reading. And I will also share with you that we are working to get um, copies of the... Uh, proposals to the information desk so that there, there will be a limited number of either um, large print or braille copies. And also they will be available electronically if you wish to load them, download them to your own device. 
And here ends the first reading. Thank you. Thank you, John. Before, ooh, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. Before I turn it over to Mark, John mentioned voting, and I want to announce something regarding voting. Later this week, we are going to be conducting elections. In or, the only way that you get to have an individual vote is if you have a dot on your badge. If you check your name badge, and my name badge, the badge holder is on the left side, so I'm feeling, he feels inside his name badge, to the top left corner, so, on the, so it's closest to the left side of my body, so it's in the top corner, there's a dot there. If you check your badge and you do not see a dot and believe you need, you should have one, go to registration before close of business there tomorrow. And I believe they close at uh, 3 o'clock tomorrow. That's July 4th. Go to registration and handle and deal with that situation. I'm, and uh, I won't. So I just want, so if you believe you need to have a dot on your badge and you don't, go to registration and address that with them by close of business tomorrow. You cannot do it during election day on Thursday. That is too late per the standing rules. Okay. To bring us a resolution, the first resolution of the convention, be it further resolved, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a longtime friend and member of ACB and just an all-around good guy from Arlington, Virginia, Mr. Mark Riker. Mike to Mark, Mike to Mark. Uh, left hand, let my left. Turn Mark on. <laughs> Hey, we're having, we're, we're working to get Mark, Mark mic'd up. Try that three times fast. He, he's trying, but we're not getting any, um, while, while we're doing that, why don't we ask the, um, first RDC uh, person, if um, I think Mike Godino had indicated he had an announcement. Mike, if you're at a mic, why don't you go? Mike at a mic, why don't you go ahead and do your announcement? Uh-oh, he's, not at a mic no, he's not at a mic. Okay. How about the door prize people? Are the door prize people ready? Is <laughs> are the door prize people at microphones? You gotta be at a mic to do your business. No, that's not monkey business. Something about microphones are not on, so. They're working on it. Okay. Oh, now I have. Ooh, mom. Don't yell. Okay. Please don't yell. I have a microphone. How about that? Are you the door prize person? Yes, I am. All right, go for it. Give us some good stuff. The first thing we have is a brown purse, and it does not say who, who gave it. So if you gave it, speak up. All right. Our name is Maval Avance. Maval Avance. Is that what the name I heard you say? Oh, not here. Okay. I don't think it's here. Okay. Next one. He's here. 
he or she is here. Okay, I think okay, we're getting... Next, the next one... Yeah, do one more. Okay. Is from Guide Dog Users. It's a goodie bag. And Woof. <laughs> that should only go to someone with a dog. Otherwise Maureen Young of New York. Maureen Young, New York. Are you here? No. Okay. Not here. I don't hear any yelling. Draw another name, please. Mitch Pomerant. <laughs> I figured he was here. Yummy. He'll enjoy those treats, won't he? <laughs> Mitch will enjoy those treats. Those go good with beer, Mitch. <laughs> okay, how are we doing on... Uh, how are we doing on getting Mark mic'd up? Are you at mic, Mark? Are you mic'd up, Mark? Mark? Hello, he's saying hello, but nothing's happening. Be it further resolved. Is the re- okay. Mitch, could you raise your hand? Mike Godino, are you at a microphone? Okay. Mike, Mike Godino is at a microphone, so um, I'm going to let you go ahead and make your announcement. It's not on, Ray. Yes, it is. There you are. You hear me? Please oh, there it is. There it is. We've got to be real close to this one. All right. Uh, no, I, I, I as you, many of you know, I'm the MMS chair. And I want to thank those of you who stopped by. Uh, we did have a winner for uh, Saturday. I got my days mixed up. For the first day, which was uh, Mary Lynn Pipefo. Mary Lynn, M-A-R-I-L-Y-N-P-I-E-P-H-O. Uh, Please come and see me this afternoon at the MMS table. And Anthony did come and collect his um, winnings from yesterday. And last night we chose uh, Howard Thomas. All right, Howard. Howard, come and visit me at the table. Now, I want you guys to know, I I just want to take a minute of personal privilege here and thank my committee that uh, these gift uh, cards come through the committee we actually go out and, and solicit and purchase many of these gift cards. And uh, the gift cards this year consist of uh, a $20 Amazon card, a $20 uh, Walmart card, a $20 Starbucks card, there's a $10 Walgreen card, and a $10 Dunkin' Donuts card. So that's what these prizes are for this year that the MMS is giving away on the daily drawings. So there are two more drawings. So if you want to get in on those last two drawings, you need to come and see me. And we are also giving away a whole um, Fire TV system with a 31-inch monitor and the Fire TV connection. So all you need is internet and you got Fire TV with this deal. So uh, if you want to get in on these, please come and see me at the MMS table. I've been there. I know. I know he's not. Every day. Okay. I lose my mind. All right. Go ahead. Just... Yes, because I took it over. (laughs) I I just wanted to say to all of you, please be patient. Everyone who's running our microphones, Rick Morin and his team, are visually impaired. We're doing this ourselves for us, and they are trying very hard. But this is a big room, and I'd appreciate your patience and understanding. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, how are we doing? Oh, Mike, come back now. We got Mark. Uh, hello? Yeah. There he is. There's Mark. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Mark Riker to do a resolution. 
They managed to turn me on. <laughs> I'm not going exciting. there. You're going to have... Yeah, okay. If this microphone was down my throat any farther, I, it's... Uh, you wouldn't be able to hear me. I don't know if you can hear me all right, but... Uh, we got gotcha. you. You're good. Very good. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you that uh, this, I know, will come as a great shock to you. Uh, I am not perfect. Isn't that amazing? Alert the media. So, last... They can't hear, so you're going to have to turn it up. Turn it up. Turn it up. What song is it you want to hear? All right. All right, so we're keeping talking while they adjust the volume. So anyway, uh, yeah, so I, I, I make mistakes on a routine basis at least once an hour. I don't know about you. Last year, I overlooked a resolution that was submitted by our friends from BITS, and uh, they were very cool about it, and our, our second... Uh, Vice President John McCann is cool about it, and he was the one who brought it to my attention. So I offer my apologies to that group. Hold on. They're going to have to turn it up, guys. No one can hear it. He's guys, all the way up. Please be patient. Gentlemen. If he was. Talk louder. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bits resolution. Whereas access to technology and the internet have become critically important to people who are blind or visually impaired. There you go. See, it wasn't all the way up after all. Whereas protection from internet viruses and malware is essential to the safe and secure operation of computer systems, and whereas many antivirus programs are inaccessible because of their use of interfaces and graphics which make them unusable by people who are blind or visually impaired. Now, therefore, be it resolved by this organization, or that this organization strongly urge all developers of antivirus and anti-malware programs to ensure that their software is designed to be fully accessible to and usable by people who are blind or visually impaired in accordance with appropriate technical accessibility standards. And why wouldn't we recommend a do-pass? Okay, it's been recommended do-pass. Is there a second? Okay. Is there any discussion? Hearing none. All those in favor of the adoption of this resolution? What's the number on that resolution, Mark? Thank you, pardon? What's the number of that resolution? Well, I, I believe this is number one. Okay, 2018 It being the first resolution we've done this year. Yep, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, question's been called. All those in favor of adopting this resolution say aye. Aye. Opposed, no. The, res- the motion is adopted. Thank you. Thank I you. Need to, I need to do one piece of business. Okay, Kim needs to do one piece of business. Here she is. All right. Thank you, Ray. I um, Every year we do have a parliamentarian who um, assists the, the chair with um, maintaining order and doing it in the proper procedure and process. So I want to introduce you to this, since we're starting to do business, I want to introduce you to this year's parliamentarian. Many of you may remember Alicia Matson, who has been with us for four years. She happens to be at the National Parliamentarians Convention this week. And so 
was that must be a real I've been, thrill, right? I've been, I've been proper procedures followed there. I, they follow all the rules. <laughs> but I want to introduce to you um, a, a woman who was referred to me through the Missouri Council of the Blind and their parliamentarian, who is also at the parliamentarians' convention, uh, <laughs> Denise Erminger. And she is a certified registered parliamentarian, and she um, is involved and has many credentials and certifications in the area of parliamentary procedure. She has served at the national, district, state, and local levels of the National Association of Parliamentarians. Denise is also a member of the American Institute of Parliamentarians, API, and she is a member of the Lester L. Doms Memorial Foundation of Parliamentarians. She currently serves as its treasurer. She is a partner of a Freeland and Erminger LLC, which is a parliamentarian corporation, and this partnership provides multi-parliamentary services for clients, such as us, um, and Denise enjoys teaching parliamentary procedure and serving as parliamentarians for organizations, boards, and conventions like ours. And I'm very happy to have Denise with me. She's a wonderful, pleasant person, and she's helping me on the podium to maintain order and do everything in the right process. So welcome, Denise. Okay. Thank you, Kim. That was really important. Um, okay. Are any of the? Do we have any other RDC announcements? Resource Development Committee. If not, I'm going to actually give you guys a 10-minute break. My watch says. Uh, yes. Yes. I think it's Kim. No. Okay. Sorry, Ray. Go ahead, Carla. Uh, yeah, Madam Chair. Okay, um, I would like to remind people that um, there's a, a, a number of things happening at the mini mall today. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I've been talking too much. <clears throat> you never um, do. <clears throat> we do have some clearance items at the mini mall today, so be sure and stop by and check those out. We also have uh, those fleece jackets if you, like me, are cold sometimes in this hotel. Um, and uh, if you happen to not be too cold, well, then you can purchase one of our great polo shirts. We are selling out of a number of things, um, several items, also several colors and sizes of shirts are um, now uh, sold out. If you have not retrieved your shirt uh, that you purchased on pre-registration, you can still bring your ticket for your shirt or for your convention pin, but we may be out of the size that you chose on your shirt. Please go ahead and bring your ticket and check it out. Um, as I said, several of the sizes are now um, not available. We also, if we, do, if we did have your size, but you didn't pick it up by yesterday, um, it does go on public sale today. So, um, you know, get, get those tickets into us early. We hope to see you at the mini mall. We have, we have great 
uh, technology items, and we have those super new convention uh, laptop, ba- uh, computer laptop bags. So be sure and stop by. We'll look for you. Mr. Chair? I thought she Mr. Said, Chair, this is Rachel I'm, from I'm, Illinois. Um, I'm, I'm not on. Uh, oh, there we are. Okay. Ooh. Mr. Chairman? Yes. I, I, Rachel I, from Illinois. I, I got you, Madam okay, President. Cool. Go ahead. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, Want to remind yeah, everybody good. that we have 50-50 raffle tickets. We're doing a drawing on September 5th. It is one ticket for $5, five for 20 It is online, our website, AC, or rather, not ACB, icbonline.org. If you have a problem doing that, feel free to see us at our table in the exhibit hall, table 8, where we're also selling coasters and cooler bags. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, okay. Hold on, folks. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to recognize the RDC for their announcements. Do you want a break? And then we're going to take a break. So I hear Kim Abair, probably for the auction. Kim, go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to remind everybody that tonight is the ACB National Auction. We have lots of goodies. Previews start at six. And the auction will promptly start at 7. We do have door prizes as a part of that as well. So please, meet us at the auction. And where is that? It's going to be in Regency A, B, and C. The Regency Ballrooms. Okay, thank you. Um, Any other RDC? Ray, this is Dan. Okay, Dan. I want to, just one more time, I want to remind you guys, got a chance to win $5,000. You can purchase uh, the ACB raffle tickets, registration, Mini Mall, or uh, by uh, you purchase them from uh, RDC members, board members. I'd be happy to say you uh, a, a winning raffle ticket to come to the Tennessee delegation. Thank you, Ray. Okay, here's what we're going to do. It's my watch says about 10:29. I'm going to give you guys a, just a bit over a 10-minute break till 10:40. 10:40, and we're going to start back with a couple door prizes. So get back here. We are now on break until 10.40. Thank you. Okay, we are on break, and that means we are going to go ahead and run a sponsor interview. And we are going to hear from uh, Charter since they presented this morning. Hello, this is Larry Turnbull with ACB Radio, and welcome to the 2018 American Council of the Blind Conference and Convention in St. Louis, Missouri. And with me is Peter Kay with uh, Charter, also known as Spectrum Communications. Hello, Peter. Hi, how are you? Great. And thank you for being a sponsor of this uh, year's convention. And we'll get right into it. Uh, As many of you know, uh, Spectrum is one of the uh, largest uh, cable TV and internet providers uh, around the United States, along with a few others. And they, uh, you know, have recently purchased, uh, Spectrum has purchased Charter and Bright House and quite a few other uh, companies. So you probably are getting familiar with them. So uh, we'll get right into this. Uh, Peter, um, what is uh, Spectrum doing to serve its customers with uh, who are blind or have uh, low vision? Uh, what do you offer for your television and internet and phone services? 
Sure. Um, I think I think it, it's it's probably worth mentioning to start that um, the first place that we started is by hiring a, a team of about 20 people uh, on our accessibility uh, product design team, and uh, that's for those not familiar with the size of accessibility teams on on corporate companies. That's pretty large. And more than half of our team uh, ha is blind or has a visual impairment of some sort. And uh, that's significant because it allows us to have a unique perspective on what our products look and feel like from a first-person point of view. Um, first thing that we started doing is uh, moving through all of our customer-facing um, products, that is, uh, websites, um, anything that we offer that our customers have to interact with, uh, we wanted to make sure that they had an accessible experience uh, using JAWS, screen reader, and Windows PCs as our default uh, go-to or our minimum viable product um, solution. We made sure that those, uh, those customer interfaces were accessible and moving forward any website that we lifted up or are moving forward to um, to stand up uh, is accessible with screen readers as well uh, and uh, mobile applications like spectrum tv and the upcoming mobile application for um, managing uh, spectrum mobile which we can talk about as well as a new uh, fourth product line that Spectrum is offering, uh, all of these products we, moving forward, we're proud to say are born accessible. Okay, well, we can talk about the app a little bit. Uh, the, what does the app, the app allow uh, customers to, to do? Um, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so Spectrum Mobile is uh, is just what it sounds like. It's a mobile phone service that we're now offering as, as a part of the bundle. And um, Spectrum Mobile uh, account app allows a customer to navigate uh, through their account information, billing information, and manage their account uh, in an accessible way. Uh, we've built the app for uh, both Android and iOS platforms. Uh, we, of course, in, are launching with Android um, and will be offering a couple of several different phone lines in that area. And so regardless of, of what, um, what operating system a customer is used to using, they'll have a fully accessible experience with their uh, either TalkBack or whatever screen reader they're using on uh, uh, the respective operating system so that they can navigate through uh, their billing information accessibly um, and be fully involved in, in understanding their bill uh, in a way that doesn't require um, external assistance or assistance to a friend or having to call customer service over and over again. Uh, and so since, since this product line is launching, um, with the accessibility team intact, um, we're proud to say that it's it's the first product that we're launching with that's completely um, designed with accessibility in mind, uh, especially for those customers who are blind or visually impaired. Uh, 
Okay, let's uh, switch gears a little bit to the TV side of things. Um, what is the status? I know they, you guys have been working on getting the set-top boxes uh, accessible for many of your customers. Uh, how is that going? Sure, we're, we're eager to, to move our uh, Spectrum Guide service out to all customers. And as you mentioned in the very beginning with with the acquisition uh, that Charter's undergone with Time Warner Cable and Bright House Networks, um, we are rushing as quickly as we can to ensure that all customers have an equal experience. And uh, in the meantime, we're still deploying a uh, Roku solution uh, to customers who are not in the part of our footprint that um, has the Spectrum Guide availability with uh, guide narration. Uh, at the moment, and uh, in addition to that, we've completely redesigned what Spectrum TV uh, mobile application looks like uh, for customers who want to be able to access all of their streaming content on their uh, tablets or uh, smartphones. And earlier this year, our design and development team dedicated a full quarter entirely to accessibility. Uh, to make that that app accessible, and we're proud to say that it's one of the most accessible TV streaming apps available. Uh, it looks great. It feels great. Uh, customers able to navigate with all the features that they're used to on their uh, on their smartphones and and Android products, and um, and we're continuing to give attention to the Roku uh, Spectrum TV app. And as some may have heard during the WWDC uh, conference this year, we're also partnering with Apple uh, to bring Spectrum to the Apple platform on Apple TV. That was going to be my next question is uh, because there was word out there that uh, Spectrum was going to start uh, giving uh, Apple TVs to their customers that uh, couldn't use the um, didn't have uh, accessibility on the set-top boxes. Is that uh, the case, or how does that work? We're still in the early stages of uh, developing in that platform. Uh, we're really excited about it, and um, as soon as we, as soon as we feel really good about about where we are in the development process, I think we'll start addressing um, customers, especially customers who. Um, are blind or visually impaired uh, about what that app looks and feels like and um, and have more information about what we can offer in terms of the Apple TV. I know a lot of us, I'm blind as well, uh, a lot of us love uh, the Apple TV platform, uh, love to use it. We find it very user-friendly and accessible, and so I'm excited about where we're headed. Uh, there and so uh, once we have more information uh, we'll be eager to get that out to our customers okay excellent um, so with the Heroku and maybe eventually the Apple TV are these uh, permanent solutions or are you still working going to try to get all the set top boxes uh, accessible as well we are still working to ensure that the set-top boxes are accessible. Um, our guide narration feature on our set-top boxes, um, customers love it. Uh, it feels great. It sounds great. The voice 
uh, is superior to those customers who have our Roku solution uh, will know that the guide narration voice uh, is superior to that of, of, of the Roku. So we want to we want to deploy that to all the customers uh, as soon as possible. I don't hear her. No. Have a date okay. to offer. Draw again. Carol. Oh. Carol Jablisco from uh, Omaha. Carol from Omaha. Carol Jablisco from Omaha. Are you are you here, Carol? I think she's here. I hear I hear Jim saying she's here. All right, one more. Do one more. The next one is F. CB $50 Lynn Coates California Lynn Coates from California I think she's yep, she's there Okay Okay folks okay we're going to do here's what we're going to do We're going to do uh, I promised um, AAVL an announcement and then we're going to move on with our program but before I turn it to to uh, AAVL I'd like to ask folks also, please keep the cross-talking down as much as possible. We have a lot of people that would like to hear what's being presented up here. This room is a little echoey. It's sometimes a little bit hard to hear. I realize, you know, you're trying to find seats and things like that, but please do it as quietly as possible. And don't tell me you're, don't tell me you're blind because we're all blind. So, anyway, uh, Nanetta, are you at a microphone? I am. Go ahead. Okay, just wait for it to come on. Is it on? Yeah, yeah. There it's you on. go. Okay. I'm just asking for Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss support. We have a raffle that will be drawn this afternoon. The first prize is $100, second prize $75, third prize $50. $1 per ticket, 6 for 5 Come to the West Virginia delegation if you'd like to buy a ticket. Thank you. You're welcome. Support, please support our affiliates. Uh, Janet, are you at a microphone, and do you have any announcements? Okay, she's here. Let's, uh, are you at a mic, Janet? Okay. We're going to give Janet a chance to make any convention announcements that she may have, and then we're going to move on. Okay, just do, 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 do. Janet, are you in a microphone? Uh, I don't hear her, so Janet, okay, I think she's, there she is. I think she's getting to one right now. Go ahead. I think. I heard some microphone tapping like somebody was at one. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and move on uh, because I don't hear Janet. All right. So moving on with the next part of our program. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce a gentleman that um, I've gotten to have the pleasure of working with for the last several years. He, uh, he's a gentleman that wears a number of hats. Let's see. He's a native Iowan. Hey, the Iowa. Yep. Figured to get them. He's Tyler's dad. And he happens to be the executive director of the American Council of the Blind. To bring forward his report to the convention, it gives me great pleasure to introduce ACB executive director, Mr. Eric Bridges. Right. 
And if I were... Ah, there it is. There you go. Cool. Good morning. Morning. Wearing my Hawkeye tie today. Go Hawks. There's got to be more than one Hawkeye fan in here. So sad. Anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, excellent. Well, it is my pleasure to... Uh, be able to speak with you all today on the goings-on of this great organization. Uh, It has been a busy year since the last time we got together, and a lot of of really positive things have happened. And some of these activities have been talked about uh, through the course of the week and during the board meeting, Uh, but I'd I'd like to go through a few of them to kind of highlight how we got to where we are with, with some of these uh, advocacy successes. Uh, before I do that, though, um, there's a really important group of people that uh, helped to put this convention on. Uh, there are the volunteers who are our members... The convention planning committee folks, the program planning committee folks, uh, all of the volunteers that those committees go out and get from JW, LDS, uh, to ensure that we have as as, uh, efficient convention that we can. And these are big hotels. One of the things that I realized over the last few years is when you try to put a thousand people or more into a hotel, that hotel has to be really big, right? And generally, it's not going to be a square or a rectangle. There's going to be weirdness involved somewhere. And it just so happens we're in a really interesting hotel. And, uh, but it, the volunteers have been excellent. The other group of, there you go, yes. The other group of people that come together to work and prepare and also work the convention day and night are members of my team. So the folks at registration, whether it's Nancy Becker, Lane Waters, Laurie Sarf, also, folks like Sharon Levering, managing the communications center and ensuring that we're getting all the Braille documents that are needed, the newspaper and a bunch of other stuff for other committee and affiliate meetings, as well as Kelly Gask, um, running around, yes, <laughs> um, making sure that that uh, I don't get too terribly lost and get to meetings on time along with doing a whole bunch of other things that are a lot more important than that. So there, there are these groups of folks uh, that work tirelessly to put this event on, and this is the biggest event that we have uh, through the course of the year. So thank you very much to all of them. So, has anybody visited acb.org within the last week? 
looks different, feels different, still has the same soul, but it, it uh, got a new hairdo. And uh, the new ACB.org, I am so excited, you guys, that, that we uh, undertook this process to redesign ACB.org to make it more visually appealing, but also, and most importantly, to make it more helpful, more intuitive to folks that are visiting it. Yes. Woo is right. Uh, it is our... It has been wonderful uh, to be able to work with the Louisville Web Group for since really its inception, ACB.org has been uh, developed by volunteers within the organization. And honestly, we couldn't have done it without, the, without members contributing their time, their, their sweat uh, equity to, to the project. But one of the challenges that came from it is there were a lot of folks that were working on it through the course of the years, and there wasn't always consistency in messaging, or at times, it was hard to go on the site to find uh, information that you, that you needed. Uh, you could find everything else except for what you needed to find. <laughs> and, and we heard this from a lot of folks, and we undertook a process that really started in late 2016. Uh, to look at all 3,700 pages that had become acb.org. Isn't that crazy? There are major multinational companies that don't have 3,700 pages on their website. Um, So the process started, and Kelly is uh, on the program later, and I'm not going to steal her thunder, but we undertook a process involving the volunteers, uh, the, the, the members of ACB, to look at all of that stuff, uh, re- replace, cut out, transplant, and voila, over a year later, we have a new ACB.org that folks can be proud of. This job is never going to be done. That's the nature of a website. And Kelly's going to talk more about that later. But I'd like to uh, publicly acknowledge and thank Kelly Gask for managing this project. As well as Larry Turnbull for all of the accessibility expertise. Really serving uh, as as Kelly's technical uh, right-hand man. And uh, so thank you very much to the two of you. It has been a really interesting last 12 months as it pertains to advocacy and in particular ACB and the media uh, getting attention for our advocacy. Last year, I believe I said something to the effect that, you know, ACB is the Uh, best-kept secret in the blind community. How frustrating is that? Well, over the last 12 months, ACB has been quoted or mentioned in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, ABCnews.com, WBEZ, Chicago Public Radio, 
and uh, CNBC.com. So there have been a number of uh, places where we have begun to receive recognition. The first project that really got all of this started was our, our partnership and advocacy with Cisco Systems to create the first accessible desk VOIP phone. Pretty great. That started last March, or actually last May, and in March of this year, we were able to make that announcement jointly with Cisco as part of the CSUN conference in San Diego. Please, yes, it's all good. The more clapping. This 8800 series phone is not some strange third-party phone that's got huge buttons that no one likes. It's unsightly. It's burnt, you know, burnt orange. It's got shag carpeting on the receiver. No, this, this phone is the phone that everybody uses in the enterprise environment. The cool part is it's now accessible. They didn't have to go mess with the hardware and make it look funky or weird or bolt something on that looked like Cousin It. All all that happened on March 19th was a software push. A simple software push took place. And the user of the phone has the ability to turn on accessibility with the touch of a button. Three, well, it's technically three. Yes, thanks, Kim. I have one. <laughs> um, it, 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 it's fantastic. And, you know, these are phones that are used in the enterprise environment. So uh, this is, you know, not a one-off sort of thing. This, this, is, this is now going to be forever with this series of phone. The other aspect of this that is important to highlight is that Cisco is not finished in the development of the accessibility of this phone, they are also looking at the needs of the low vision community in this as well. Uh, In particular, dealing with the display, color contrast, size of font, those changes will be coming at some point here in the near future as well. So please be on the lookout and we will make an announcement when that uh, enhancement has been added uh, to their software. So... Exciting, exciting stuff. In February of this year, and I'm going to go back to yesterday a little bit, but um, ACB was contacted by NCIS. They were wanting advice on uh, how to go out and recruit for blind actresses uh, to come in and, uh, and, and do a a table reading regarding uh, an episode that, where there was going to be a, a blind character. We had a couple of discussions with the casting director. He then put us in touch with the episode writer. The episode writer was so self-conscious about how this character would be portrayed that, that literally we wound up spending close to three hours over the period of a week, talking with him about 
just how blind people live, how we maneuver through life, uh, the words that we use when referring to ourselves, the words that we probably don't use. Uh, he wanted to get it right. And uh, through that process, he put us in touch with Marilee Talkington. And she's here. She'll be speaking at the luncheon this afternoon, the ADP luncheon. Uh, and it's been fantastic. It's, it is so refreshing to have uh, Hollywood come uh, and not just sort of check a box, right, but actually listen and incorporate suggested uh, changes or enhancement into the dialogue of that character or the dialogue of the characters that are interfacing with the, with the blind character. The neatest part of that episode, it's called Sight Unseen, um, and this is just my own observation. The neatest part of that episode is at the end, Marilee Talkington's character, Annie, she went out on a date with Wilmer Valderrama. That's pretty awesome, right? He's a pretty hunky guy. Agent Torres. And, you know, you don't, you don't see that either, right? Number one, she's blind, playing a blind character. That's number one. But also, uh, she's not magical, mystical. She's not really a victim. But uh, she's an attractive woman that was found attractive by the character on the show. And they went on a date. Giddy up, right? So, so that was a, a really neat thing. And ACB actually was credited uh, in being a consultant uh, through the media, which was really, really nice. Last December, I had uh, a meeting out in San Francisco with folks from Apple regarding uh, a project that they were looking to undertake and they were wanting my opinion. Uh, there's, this, there's this entity called the Uni- Unicode Council. What is the Unicode Council? Well, they, they are this uh, faceless group of people that approve emoji. You don't say emojis. You say emoji. I've made that mistake many times. And Apple was looking to put together a proposal of, of uh, emoji to send to the Unicode Council that dealt with the representation of people with disabilities. So they were looking uh, to work with the deaf community, uh, uh, folks in the mobility impairment community, but they wanted to work with us to... Uh, assist in, in the development of a guide dog emoji. And I said, absolutely. Let's, let's sit down, let's talk. Um, and so we did, and then they said, well, what else? I said, well, how about the other 98% of blind people in the world that use canes? <laughs> um, and, and so we were able to, to work with them on a, a proposal that incorporated a man with a white cane and a woman with a white cane. So those are the three. They were wrapped in a proposal sent to the Unicode Council, which I believe is located in Europe. Uh, 
Facebook, uh, Microsoft, Google, whenever they're wanting to propose a new emoji or a set of emoji, it all has to go through uh, uh, the Unicode Council. And it, it became very public once they sent the proposal. And in the proposal, they credit the organizations that they consulted with. And there we were. The, and we began being contacted by, uh, well, WBEZ, the public radio station in Chicago. We got to go on uh, morning drive and talk about emoji for 15 minutes. It was cool. I got to say smiling pile of poo on public radio. The, the, the fun part of that is there, there was, apparently there's like strict constructionists in the Unicode Council and then there's others. So there, there was some debate about the merits of, the, of Apple's proposal um, and uh, the, the gentleman that was interviewing me said, you know, what do you think about, you know, the, any potential pushback? And I said, well, my goodness, you know, they've approved an emoji that, is, that looks like an urn. That's weird. They've also approved an emoji that, like, with a chick coming out of an egg, like, being hatched. They've also approved an emoji that says smiling pile of poo. That's how it's tagged. Why in the world would a guide dog or a person with a white cane be an issue, right? And uh, I don't believe that there will be. But it was, it was, it's, it's fascinating, the opinions that folks have out there. I, I fully understand that this is not going to cure the employment challenges that we have in this country or deal with diabetic retinopathy, right? However, when it comes to social inclusion, when it comes to uh, being more included in how we communicate every day in the world, having representation of our community, uh, professionally well-done representation through emoji is a very cool thing, guys. And it gets our name out there. We're collaborating and doing stuff that, that does matter. So lots of... Lots of interesting stuff. In, in May, there was a, a very long piece in the Wall Street Journal that talked about technology and the needs of uh, our community. And is technology, mainstream technology, meeting the needs of the blind community? One of the, there were a lot of people quoted. Um, we were honored to have a quote um, in that article dealing with autonomous vehicles. Um, the autonomous vehicle universe is very real. And uh, how we are maneuvering through working with companies like General Motors, who was here, Uber, Waymo, and others, to ensure that when this stuff, when this technology becomes publicly available, that we can access it, right off the bat, first generation, that's the goal. 
And there are companies out there that, that are asking us, well, how can we differentiate ourselves from, you know, another company? And I always tell them, I want to be able to use yours first, the day that it becomes available to everyone else. And so this, this, this article sort of highlighted some of that. Uh, there are a lot of companies at this convention. Um, the, the convention sponsorship dollars are up 18% over last year. The best part from my perspective is that these companies aren't just helping to, to, uh, you know, our, our, to support our, our mission from a financial standpoint. They're here. Over 90% of the companies that sponsored this convention are here. They want to hear from you. Our culture of collaboration historically, um, makes it uh, far uh, easier to work with a lot of these companies and meeting them where they are. Some companies, frankly, don't do a very good job with accessibility. Most of those companies that, that don't do a very good job actually know that they don't, and they're not really sure what to do about it. And, and so we, we can step in, we can help, or we can just yell at them and throw rocks. Um, there are times when it feels good to yell and throw rocks, I will admit. Uh, but we've been able to, to make products more accessible through collaborating. Cisco is a prime example. I'm not sure that any of us have really thought about Cisco as a company from an accessibility standpoint until, uh, you know, the, the work that, that we did with the phone. We're also working with Cisco on WebEx and making WebEx more accessible. We continue our work with Microsoft and the wonderful relationship we have with Microsoft. Um, if I could, just for a brief minute, um, that video that was shown on, uh, during the opening session of me, uh, the last 45 seconds, you just heard my voice. And uh, th the way that it was produced, you weren't able to, to, to know what was actually happening. It wasn't my face that was being shown, it was me and my son. So, yeah, we were using seeing AI uh, in our home, right? So it was eight hours or six hours of uh, eight camera people in, in our home. Uh, Tyler wound up going and taking the director out, uh, going down the slide and swinging, and things got a little hairy for a while, but... But really what it was was the interaction between he and I. And I just wanted you all to know that. He, it, it was to show how uh, you, you know, people utilize it in their daily lives. And one of the things was I was actually reading a flyer that we picked up from his school that day using Seeing AI. So, and I was also, I think, looking at wine bottles. They had me looking at a lot of wine bottles with Seeing AI because I told them I'd do that. So anyway, that... Um, I just wanted you all to be aware that it wasn't just about me, but it was about how I interacted with my son. So there are a lot of really neat things that are, that are 
happening and going to be happening. Tony Stevens, uh, who is our resident rock star, uh, is going to be sharing with you later this morning as well as tomorrow all of the wonderful advocacy work that, that has been going on. It's wonderful to have him on our team, uh, as well as Claire Stanley. Uh, it's great to be able to welcome Claire to our team. She's been with us for a little over three months and uh, is fitting in nicely to, to the chaos, the controlled chaos at, in the office. So uh, there, there's much more that, that needs to be done, but we've come very far, um, whether it's the new logo and tagline, Together for a Bright Future, uh, the continued implementation of our strategic plan, uh, the, you know, the endowment, legacy endowment fund that we've established uh, to help ensure the viability of ACB for decades down the road. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff that's, that's, that's happening, and I couldn't be more proud of where we've been able to come. Uh, there's a lot that we're going to that, that be undertaking this fall, uh, going into next year, that you'll uh, hear about, read about, uh, but overall, what we've been able to do is to increase the pace of, of the, the work that we do, uh, be able to get you all more results because you deserve results. You are our members and what you want uh, matters. It matters a great deal. So there are other issues, concerns that you all have. You can always feel free to email me ebridges at acb.org. But other than that, uh, I thank you so much for taking the time to be here this morning to, to listen and have a great rest of your convention. purposes of audio description, that was two tall men, Josh, uh, trying to move one out from the podium, one in. <laughs> okay. With, so, no, great work. Thank you, Eric. Uh, great work going on. And uh, it shows all of us that when we're not here at convention, there's a heck of a lot going on throughout the year. And uh, uh, our team, uh, from the board to the staff, uh, supervised by Eric, worked very, very hard on all of our behalf. So let's give him another round of applause. All righty. Speaking of that team, it gives me great pleasure to introduce another member of that team. How many of you remember hearing six months ago about some fanfarish thing called all the t thing called tax reform? Oh, we heard a lot about tax reform, didn't we? And um, um, while I certainly like to have more money in my paycheck, there are real issues and consequences with that particular piece of legislation. So to come forward and talk not only about that, but about um, ABLE 529 accounts and other important money, money matters, personal money matters to many folks here in the room, Gives me great pleasure to introduce a guy who uh, spent a little time around uh, Loyola of Chicago. Go Ramblers. Wasn't it great, the Final Four with the Loyola of Chicago? I'm a big college basketball fan, so. 
gives me great pleasure to bring to the microphone another member of ACB's team, our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Mr. Tony Stevens. Get over here, Tony. Uh, microphone, where are you? Here you are. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Go Ramblers. Um, how's everybody doing today? Hello, St. Louis. Oh, come now. I get to talk to you about tax law and investment. How's everybody doing? That's much better. You can go ahead and take a nap now if you brought your blankets with your warm, fuzzy guide dog slippers. Pull them out. If we don't have those yet, take note, schools for guide dogs. That would be great swag. Um, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Madam President. Um, you know, what I'd like to do today is ex exactly what Ray had said. Talk to you some about, from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, some things that are, that are personal directed toward, toward our members. Uh, but I also want to talk about some benefits that came out of that from an investment standpoint that not a lot of people may know about or take advantage of. You know, investment's an important thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's from ACB, hats off to Eric Bridges and to our board of directors for turning our organization around to be a smarter and well-invested organization for, for a lot of people. So hats off to that, and, and thanks again to Eric for his. You know, in transitioning it, it's important to think about investment and to think about finances, some things that we would always don't, don't dive into. You know, they might give us an egg in 11th or 12th grade to carry around school, but they don't talk about rollover IRAs, or they don't talk about what to withhold and what happens on April 16th when you realize, oh, I owe how much to who? So a couple of things just real quick, because we are six months into a new year that has had significant reform in the tax area. So what I'd like to do is just offer a couple of things. I'm going to be brief. What I'd like to do is offer a couple of resources for folks so they can go and take advantage of them, Okay. So the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did major restructuring in sort of what is essentially the, the hierarchy or, or tax brackets, as it's called, into how income is being taxed in the United States. There are changes to that. If you have not checked in with your payroll administrator, whoever handles your payroll, if you are currently employed or earning any income uh, from a job, if you haven't checked in to make sure those withholdings are accurate, this is a plea for you to please do so because there's nothing more stressful than, than finding yourself owing money. Now, one of the big things that was a concern and that we advocated and we fought for and we were successful in protecting throughout last year's debate around tax reform, because it was on the table initially to get cut, was the blind standard deduction and age standard deduction. And that was something that we were fortunate that did not get cut. A very 30,000-foot glimpse of what took place in the tax reform, and I will be brief with it because it can make your eyes roll back and make you snuggle under that blanket and those slippers you brought. But essentially what has happened is the government through the administration had wanted to streamline the tax process in a lot of ways. There are many cuts that are, that are rhetorically, you know, hotbeds in the conversation. This isn't about those. This is about each and every one of you in this room right now. Okay, we're not talking about partisanship rhetoric. We're talking about your income and how it's impacted now. What's commonly known as a standard deduction. You know, oftentimes we will itemize things like you can itemize your medical expenses if you have a lot of expenses per pertaining to your blindness, pertaining to other disabilities or physical impairments you might have, diabetes or some other condition. We would oftentimes itemize those deductions and add them up to a certain amount. 
And if that exceeded what's called the standard deduction, then that begins to cut into your income so that you don't get taxed on all your money and that it could bring you into a lower tax bracket even. That's sort of the way it works. Now, what has happened now is they have significantly increased what's called the standard deduction, which means if you're someone who's single, you can say that $12,000 a year you get tax-free the government doesn't look at it. You know, they don't start taxing you until after that 12000 If you're the head of household, it's now 18000 And if you're a married couple, it's now $24,000. So it's a significant increase into that. Now, what happens is it becomes a mathematics game. If you're also blind or over the age of 65, you can add on to that $1,300. They kept the blind standard deduction. Or if you're single, it's $1,600 now that you can add on to that. So it's, if you're married, that's... 1300 plus 24, that's $25,300, right? So that becomes your base. If you're single, it could be 13600 So within that, you begin to play math, right? And is it going to be worth me itemizing all of my things or just use the standard deduction in addition to what we get with the blind deduction? Now, that, in a sense, is going to guide you next year, and it's important to, to look at those numbers because they can make, they can, you know, significantly bring down your income, in some situations, right? But it might still be worth itemizing all of your your expenses, depending on how much you have to spend for blindness-related or health-related impairments. Now, these are things that I can't teach to you. I am not a tax consultant, all right? I'm just an advocate in Washington, D.C. But there is a program out there that some people may not know about, and it's a very important program that the IRS helps provide, right? The IRS does a good job of providing accessible forms in BRF format and in large print format, in other formats. But they also provide something called the Volunteer Income Tax Assistant Program, or VITA. Who in the room has ever used VITA? We have a few people. Who in the room has ever paid taxes? Okay. That's a significant large number. If you have difficulty, and I would encourage you to look into VITA this year, to make sure that you're, you're doing the right decisions that need to be made in getting ready for next year's tax year. So I'm going to give you a 1-800 number to call your local IRS, or you can go to irs.gov. The 1-800 number is simple. It's 1-800-906-9887. That's 1-800-906-9887. And you can find out more information about local VITA assistance that you can have in the VITA program. Because right? we don't want to get caught up and then find out we're not paying enough into our deduction each time or what happens with our investments. Because there are other things that we, you know, in terms of inheritance, estate taxes, other types of taxes have been repealed. So there are things that we need to know to just be smarter. And again, I'm not a tax consultant, but I, I hope that you can go find somebody that can help in organizations. There are also volunteer communities. There used to be called the, the uh, National Center, National Community Tax Coalition. Uh, there are other volunteer groups and communities that can help with all this. So find somebody and make sure that this year you're looking into that. Now, one of the things that came out uh, as well that's new, and where's any ACB students in the room? All right, I just, okay. Those students, they sleep in so late. I'm so jealous. Oh, to be asleep till lunch. All right, I didn't mean to just out that one by accident. Okay. Anybody lose their vision before the age of 26 in this room? Okay. That's a large number of people. There is a program called the ABLE Act, the Achieving Better Life Experience Act, 
And what it does is it's in, it's in every state you can participate in, but states set up retirement investment accounts as if it's like a, an IRA type account. They're, they're similar, they're equivalent to what's called a 529 account. These are called 529A accounts, which are, you know, oftentimes we hear about college savings accounts. And it's a college savings account. That's what ABLE is, right? And ABLE's been around for a few years, although not everybody knows about it. And we'll talk a little bit about some advocacy that we can do at the end toward that. But what the ABLE Act does is it allows you to take money. It's not a tax deduction. You can't save your taxes by putting money into it. But in 2018, you can take $15,000 or someone you know, if you have any friends with $15,000 looking to give it to somebody, or beneficiaries, you know, you can be the beneficiary of $15,000, or families can put money into an ABLE account, similar to how they do a college savings account. Now, that money can be used. It can invest money. You can make money on money, right? It's like, a, it's like an IRA-type account or, a, you know, investing your money. And you can pull that money out without tax penalty, Okay. And what that money does is it can be used for anything pertaining to your blindness, all the way to transportation and housing, right? If it's paying someone to come each week and read for you, if it's paying for an IRA subscription, if you want to save up and save up that 15000 after years and get an autonomous vehicle in a few years when they're available in the public, right? The ABLE is a smart sense way with government understanding that, and this is particularly powerful for people on Medicaid and SSI. Too long in this country, we have been forced to live in poverty. Too long in this country, we have been forced to live by constraints that say you can't have more than $2,000 in the bank. How can you get up on your feet if in Washington, D.C., a modest apartment is $2,000 a month? So to that end, the ABLE account, if you're on Medicaid, can go up to $100,000 in your savings, all right? So it's something to think about in that sense. Now, there are some things with if you pass away, the money has to go, then go back, and it's called Medicaid payback. But if you're on Medicaid, look into the ABLE account. It's a way to put money aside and to pay for the things that are important in your life pertaining to your disability. If it's Uber, if it's paratransit, if it's transportation, if it's housing, a lot of these things that sometimes... You know, you might have difficulty getting waivers or other things in your state. Look into the ABLE account. You can find out more about ABLE by going to the ABLE National Resource Center. It's ABLE, A-B-L-E-N-R-C dot org. A-B-L-E-N-R-C dot O-R-G. Now, who's lost their vision 26 or older in this room? All right. There's a few of us and a few of the people in the room. Now... Something to know about what's going on right now in Washington. And this is a call to call your member of Congress. There's a thing called the ABLE Age Adjustment Act. When ABLE first came onto the scene, they weren't sure how much it would cost. So they capped it at under 26. What's happening is states are realizing the more people put into an ABLE account, ABLE accounts are actually threatened right now because not enough people are paying into them. Secretaries of states have written to Congress and said, we need to increase the age for ABLE because we need more people to put in. It is an investment account that makes money. The more we pay for the lottery ticket, guess what? We get more money back, right? That's because in some ways it's an investment. It makes more money. The more we put into ABLE accounts as investments for states, those states make more money. The accounts are more solvent. They're better for people taking money out. It's, it's just, it makes more sense to get more people. So there's currently a push to increase the age of ABLE. And so that's important for the, because we know our population, the majority loses their age at 40 or older. 
So this is an important thing. I encourage you to reach out to your member of Congress and tell them to support the ABLE Age Adjustment Act in Congress to help bring the age of, because it's Democrat and Republican states have said, we need more people in this for it to work. So it's a lose it, use it or lose it type of situation. So find out more about ABLE. Think about your investment. The exciting thing, too, I was throwing this out for the students. If you know anybody with a student that has a disability with a 529, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did allow you to roll over your college investment money from your 529 regular college account into an ABLE. So you could just roll it right over. So if, let's say, you have a college savings account and you're 22 years old, you don't have enough money to put 15000 aside, but grandma and grandpa and mom and dad were smart years ago, you can push that money into your ABLE, your 529A account. So it's a smart way for young adults especially to get that money up so that someday they could afford an autonomous vehicle or when they move out on their own, uh, if it's paying for, like I said, IRA or other services and things like that, these kind of things that you can, you can offset the cost for. It's a smart way to invest in the challenges that we oftentimes find uh, make us needing to, to, to pay extra to make our lives more equal. So email advocacy at acb.org if you have any questions on any of the tax reform or the ABLE Acts. Again, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we don't always think about, but it makes the difference, particularly later in life. Smart spending, smart investing can help us have a smart pathway to more independence and opportunity in our country. So thank you, everybody. I'll look forward to talking again tomorrow on on more heated issues and what's going on in Washington. But we wanted to make sure that we are thinking smart as we make make our way here to St. Louis. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Tony. All right. Okay, and he got us back on schedule. So that's great. Um, Okay. Next, uh, Chip Haley and Ron Brooks, please be getting to micro to be making your way up here because you're next. Um, while we're uh, while they're doing that, um, I heard a story the other day. So a little boy walks up to his mom. He says, "Mommy, mommy, where do children come from?" And mommy says, "Well, children come from God." And so okay, so he walks up to his dad and he says, "Daddy, daddy, where do children come from?" And daddy says. Well, children come from money. So little boy is just all confused. So he walked back to his mommy. He says, Mommy, Mommy, why do you say the children come from God? But Daddy says they come from, mom, from, from money. And Mommy says, that's his family, not mine. <laughs> actually heard that. That was actually told by a priest. So now that I've probably... Uh, I, I'm here all week. Please be good to your waitresses. <laughs> with that, Chip, Ron, you guys here? Uh, Chip or Ron, I, you guys need to come up on stage. Where Ron's here. I'm, okay, I'm going to let Ron go first then to present uh, the uh, Freeman Award, uh, Nettie Freeman Award from the Board of Publications, because I think he did the Henley Award the other night already. Right to me, right over here, Ron. Um, that's okay. Uh, here you go. It gives me great pleasure to introduce from the great state, great city of Phoenix, Arizona, the chair of the ACB Board of Publications, Mr. Ron Brooks. Do you want it? Uh, I've got oh, the plaque right here. Oh, you got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Those are for Chip. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back here. So um, 
the, each year, the uh, Board of Publications has the opportunity to uh, present several uh, awards. We presented one of those awards yesterday. The uh, Vernon Henley Award was presented to Comcast NBC Universal. So um, today we will be presenting the Ned E. Freeman Excellence in Writing Award. Before I do that, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge the Board of Publications. These are folks who work really hard. Uh, to do a number of different things. Um, that includes um, Deb Cook-Lewis from Washington State, Paul Edwards from Miami, Florida, Susan Glass from uh, Saratoga, California, and last but not least, Donna Brown from uh, West Virginia. And these are, these are folks who give a lot of time. Uh, they help with uh, things like at, um, looking at the Braille Forum and the eForum. But again, one of the cool things we get to do is we get to do awards. And I just want to tell you that every year this is really hard because there is so much good writing in the ACB Braille Forum and in the eForum and in all of the publications that the state's uh, the state uh, chapters and the special interest affiliates do. And all of those are, are eligible for the Freeman Award. And every year we vote as a committee, as a board of publications. We have a little polling system to look at all the articles that are, that are in these magazines or that have been nominated. And I won't say that it comes to blows, but I will say that it is a difficult decision every time. This year was no exception. We had a number of really good articles. Um, so the one that I'm going to uh, be sharing with you or talking about is, is really, um, it's the creme de la creme. Um, it is a really, really nice piece, and uh, I'm really excited to present it. Before I do, I want to encourage you to write. Um, we want to hear from you. The, and one of the things that we're doing with the ACB Braille Forum and eForum, and look forward to your newsletter uh, the, to the ACB Forum in August for more information. But we are going to be introducing themes. And the goal is to get you guys to write about the things that you know about and the things that are important. So without further ado, I am going to share with you uh, the Ned E. Freeman Excellence in Writing Award. This, is, um, this award is provided to someone who has authored um, something which has been published in the ACB Braille Forum or eForum or in one of our state uh, and special interest newsletters which has been nominated. Uh, it is awarded based on originality, quality of writing, uh, uniqueness of the topic, um, and this year's article really hits on a number of those scores. This article transported me when I read it to a place I've never been. I was able to be there, see it, smell it, touch it, feel it, and feel really, really jealous. So without further ado, and I hope he's here, I tried to sneak around and find out, and I don't actually know, and I'm hoping he is. This year's auth article, the Ned E. Freeman Excellence in Writing Award, is presented to Richard Rueda, California for an article called In the Palm of Nature, which used the sights, smells, I'm sorry, sights, sounds, and smells of the park 
to transport readers to the heart of rural Italy, and boy did it, presented July 3rd, 2018, here in St. Louis, Missouri. Richard, are you here? He's on his way up. Come on up, Richard. Okay. All right. While I'm, we're waiting, I'm going to put in a plug for our, re, our writer's workshop tomorrow uh, afternoon from 1.30 to uh, 2, uh, 1.15 to 2.30. We will be talking about uh, social media writing with Katie and Kel, uh, Katie um, and Kelly, uh, Kelly Gask, uh, to talk about how to improve your social presence, how tips and tricks for using all the different media. And here is Richard. Um, so here is your plaque. Congrat- congratulations. And would you like to say anything? Right around me. Wow, it's an honor, and uh, thank you, Ron. Thank you, the BOP, and uh, if you haven't had a chance to read the article, I I even love reading it once in a while, but thank you, guys. It was, um, it really, I'm glad that it transported you, Ron, and I'm happy to have inspired the award. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. I'm speechless. (laughs) Did you bring any wine? Oh, Richard. Yes. And I've got the box for that if you'd like us to... uh... Uh, ship that to you. I've got that. Just in case you're wondering what's going on, they're taking pictures of Richard with the award. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Judy's going to do it? Okay. Uh, Chip Haley appears is not in the room. Chip? Okay. So... Calling all chips, yes. <laughs> Calling in your chips, that's a poker thing. Well, we're, we're going to go move on now to the Affiliate Growth Awards. Um, and while I do that, also, Kelly Gask, if you're in the room, please make your way to the stage. You're on after this, so we need you. Okay, so Chip Haley is not here, but he has a very able substitute to help out with this this morning. It gives me great pleasure to introduce a member of the awards committee from the great state of Virginia, Miss Judy Jackson. Oh, Chip, Chip's here. I'm sorry. Judy, okay, Chip, he, hey, well, well, let, let me rewind. That was not a good rewind. To introduce, so to introduce, present the Affiliate Growth Awards, it gives me great pleasure to introduce from right here in the great state of Missouri, from Joplin, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the co-chair of the awards committee, Mr. Chip Haley.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to, first of all, thank our Madam President, Kim Charlson, for allowing me to co-chair the ACB Awards Committee. It has been a wonderful experience, and what a privilege, honor that it's been working with such awesome, outstanding folks. I'd like to take just the opportunity to introduce the committee, beginning with Jean Mann, New York, Judy Jackson, Virginia, Ann Brash, Illinois, Janet Dickelman, Minnesota, one of our newest members, Gretchen Mowney, Missouri. Peter Ulchel, Missouri. And my co-chair, Chell Hart, South Dakota. And I'm Chip Paley from Missouri. And also, give a great big shout-out for Sharon Lovering from the National Office. We appreciated so many of the nominations that were submitted, and we got some really great nominations. And this first award that we're going to give this morning is so deserving of this particular award, and I'm so delighted, so proud to be able to stand before you and present this award. This first award that we're going to present this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is the Robert S. Bray Award. And this award goes to, drum roll please, goes to the American Printing House for the Blind. And here to do the reading, I give you Judy Jackson. I don't, there we go. It's a little, I'm a little shorter than the microphone. All right, how's this? Can you hear me? Okay, so the first thing I want to read for you is um, the criteria for the Robert S. Bray Award. So the Robert S. Bray Award is given in honor of the first director of what is now the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. This award may be, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm screaming, may be given to an individual or an organization in the area of accessing information. Okay, so that's the criteria. So if you all will sing Jeopardy or tell a joke for a minute, I'll get to the other file that has the nomination letter. Do, 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 do. I, I learned this skill from Mark Reichert. When I used to do resolutions up here, I was so serious and so scared and always felt like, oh my gosh, I can't be funny. But I've learned from Mark that it's okay. It all comes out in the wash, right? So, y'all aren't singing though. What's wrong? Come on now. Sing like a choir. Do, 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 
You better hurry. I'm almost there. There we go. Almost there. About another second. All right. I'm there. All right. So now I'm going to read the nomination letter. Now, what I will tell you at the outset that that the nomination letter is pretty long. And so um, I have taken the liberty not to read the entire thing because we will be here till lunch tomorrow. But I will tell you that it was a very well-written letter and um, has a lot in it that I think all of you will be really excited about. Um, but what I, what I did do was take portions. There were two articles um, that this nomination letter was derived from, and I will read portions of the first article. So um, the gentleman who, who made this nomination said to the awards committee, I would like to nominate the American Printing House for the Blind uh, for the Robert S. Bray Award for their creation of Indoor Explorer. Indoor Explorer is a feature of nearby Explorer that allows a blind person to navigate indoors independently by utilizing low-powered Bluetooth beacons combined with maps from open... Oops, my um, braille display is moving. Oh, gosh. I hate when it does that. If you get a text message, this is one thing you don't want, Kim. (laughs) When you get a text message, it screws you up. So it's... I mean, it's still here, but yeah. So... um, All right, one second. Let me just get to where I was. Um, I can actually, um, so that if this happens again, that's what happens when you use your phone with the Braille display. Um, I can basically tell you what this um, nomination letter talked about because it's really exciting. It's something that um, they've started in Louisville. It's, um, from this, it's not uh, out uh, for public use. They're still doing some testing. Craig Metter, <clears throat> the director of APH, certainly had a lot of really great things to say um, about this particular device. Um, so there is an, uh, an article um, in, uh, I can, we can get the email out to you, but there's a um, an article that talks about this quite in detail. Um, let me just, let me, let me give you a little bit of this. Louisville International Airport is the, quote, first fully accessible airport, close quote, in the nation and possibly in the world, according to Craig Metter, president of the American Printing House for the Blind, On Tuesday, and this is written back in January, on Tuesday, the APH introduced wayfinding mobile technology that uses Bluetooth and beacon technology to help blind and visually impaired travelers navigate through the airport. The system, which was created with funding support from the James Graham Brown Foundation uses more than 140 beacons 
placed every 30 or so yards to give users turn-by-turn directions and describe them and describe what is nearby. Every concourse is mapped, every gate, every restaurant, every bathroom, every ticket counter, baggage carousel can be found and identified using a navigation app such as Nearby Explorer. Craig Metter said at the unveiling event on Tuesday, we believe that a compassionate city is an accessible city. People can use the new technology by downloading the Nearby Explorer mobile application. There is a free version as well as one for $79.99. The paid version of the app offers additional features, including the ability to save information. Users can either get directions to a specific location or use the compass feature to identify places in a given direction. The application uses the beacon's latitude, longitude, floor number, and signal strength to figure out where the user is. Metter said that one person told him that they didn't even know the Louisville airport had a smash burger until he used the new technology. Isn't that awesome? Larry Scootcon, thank you. (laughs) I practiced that earlier, I forgot. Director of Technology Products and Research for APH is blind and said he had successfully navigated his way to the security checkpoint and his gates in the past, but never knew which airline counter was which or what restaurants were there. Independence is bigger than most people realized, Scuton said. The Louisville Airport is piloting the program, and if it goes well, then it could be expanded to other airports around the country. Thank you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, let's hear it for the American Printing House for the Blind. since I have it. Um, so, so we have a plaque for, uh, for Craig and APH, Robert S. Bray Award, presented to the American Printing House for the Blind 
in recognition of its beneficial creation of Indoor Explorer, a feature of Nearby Explorer that allows blind people to navigate indoors independently. July 3rd, 2018, St. Louis, Missouri. Congratulations, Craig. Thank you. This is um, quite the honor. I really appreciate this. What's exciting behind this is this is part of a bigger initiative at APH. We decided as a company a year ago is that we had a responsibility to all of Louisville, and that is to make it what we hope to be the most accessible city in the United States. We are currently um, outfitting all the public buildings, all the major venues um, with Beacon Technology so that consumers, people can travel independently or make their decisions about travel. And we're also addressing issues with transportation and media, on-demand media in, in available formats, working with the mayor of, of Louisville. Our hope, the exciting thing about wayfinding technology is we are on the verge of a revolution. It's, it's not just APH, it's other great groups out there like Sendero and Blind Square, and everybody is working towards that same mission of creating, using open street maps, is creating a universe that allows blind travelers to make their decisions about independent travel and allow them to go where they want to go. And so this is, we are just on the cusp of this. Uh, There's going to be some exciting stuff over the next few years. Um, The, the, uh, so stay tuned. And uh, if you have a favorite app out there, we're working right now with all the other companies that are developing apps that help with wayfinding technology and trying to come to agreements about sharing our beacon technology, creating an open source. So the consumer will have the ability to decide what, app they use and will not be limited by specific apps. Um, So it's uh, great times are ahead. Once again, thank you so much for this honor and this opportunity. We really appreciate it. Appreciate all of you at ACB. Thank you. Okay, we have two member growth awards we want to present this morning. The first one, I started to say the largest member, but it's actually the largest number of new members. And this year's recipient of the 2018 largest number of new members goes to the great state of Mississippi. With 47 new members. Do we have someone from the great state of Mississippi to accept the award? While Ralph is coming up, um, I'll read the plaque. American Council of the Blind Affiliate Growth Award presented to Mississippi Council of the Blind in recognition of the largest increase in number 
in number of members, you say that, in 2018, July 3rd, 2018, St. Louis, Missouri. Mississippi. Well, that's a good place to take it. Yes. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to the committee and to ACV, and we appreciate the award. We will try to continue to grow and go ACV. Pretty awesome stuff, isn't it? Yeah. All right. This next uh, award that we want to present, I tell you, when I, when I seen the numbers, absolutely incredible. The percentage growth, 64.29. Are you kidding me? Goes to the great state of Delaware. Who's coming to accept the Delaware Award? All right. All right, Debbie, come on up. You're the next contestant. Come on at, down. At the American Council of the Blind. So the award, sa- or the plaque says, American Council of the Blind Affiliate Growth Award presented to Delaware Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired in recognition of the largest percentage of membership increase in 2018. July 3rd, 2018, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm sorry, Chip, it's stuck. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Boy, this is exciting. We are such a tiny affiliate, and we are so grateful to have this award. Hopefully, we can uh, even have more members next year, and I can't wait to take this back and show it to our membership. This will really encourage them, and thank you so very much. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, one more time. Give it up for the great state of Delaware. It's people jostling for position up here. Okay. Um, Okay, we are running. We are a little bit behind schedule. I know people have to take off for luncheons and things, but we do have one more really important presentation. But before I do that, 
I'm going to recognize Janet Dickelman if she can get to a microphone or if she's got any convention announcements that she would like to make. Janet? I'm right here. I, there you I, are. I would have waited till after Kelly. That okay. Was, <laughs> well, I didn't want, I want no. people that aren't, maybe okay. have to leave. Go ahead. Perfect. Uh, reminder, the tear mender that was donated from the St. Louis Lighthouse for the Blind is at the Missouri booth number nine. You have your instructions in your registration bag, but the tear mender itself is at the booth, so please stop by and pick it up. I was asked by the Missouri Council of the Blind to let especially MCB members n- reminder that there is a parade tomorrow morning in front that is meeting in front of Union Station Hotel, and some of the streets are going to be closed off. In fact, most of the streets in front of the hotel, I believe you can get in on 20th, but everything else is going to be closed, so please make your transportation accordingly so you're here by 7.30 tomorrow. Uh, Mark Twain tour on Friday is leaving at 5.30 a.m., not 7.30 a.m., so 5.30, but it'll be well worth it. From the information desk, things that have been found, a Bluetooth keyboard, uh, which was found in nominating committee. Ellen Telker, if you haven't already gotten it, we have your iPhone. Um, If you've lost a book port, if you've lost a belt, yes, that's true. Um, the the tick. I know I'm just reading it, people. Um, the tickets for Alana Centaur. If you've lost the Braille Star Spangled booklet, Star Spangled Banner booklet. If you've lost a set of earbuds. If you've lost, and this is just written down as alarm. It's someone's little alarm clock that I understand was going off this morning at 6 a.m. Um, also, if you have lost a slate, it is at the convention at the information desk. We are still looking for someone to turn in a yellow sun hat, and apparently someone has misplaced their Ira glasses. So if you found those, please bring those. Um, wine tasting reminder, wine tasting for BPI is in Colorado Eagle. That is a change. It's not in the BPI suite. Banquet tickets, if you ha- or banquet tables, please stop by the information desk to reserve your table of eight. We need the names of the people at your table. And uh, a name for your table, and you'll get your table number. Tomorrow's afternoon session by Apple will be in Regency C. And the life member reception on Thursday for life members, by invitation, has um, been moved to Grand Ballroom B. And the hotel staff has asked that when you are checking out, especially on Friday, since it will be a heavy checkout day, if you need assistance or with a bellman, they're going to be very, very busy. So please plan early to make your arrangements to make sure you get down in time for your shuttle. So allow extra time to get assistance from your hotel room and through the front desk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Janet. Okay, we have one more presentation this morning. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce another fantastic member of the ACB team. How many of you enjoy those articles that seem to come out about every day on the leadership list? Well, the lady responsible for that also wears many other hats. Not just an executive assistant, she is our media design specialist. And is everybody enjoying the new acb.org? To talk to us this morning a little bit about how that all came to be. It gives me great pleasure to introduce 
from the ACB National Office, our Executive Assistant and Media Design Specialist, Ms. Kelly Gask. I'm definitely a lot shorter than Ray. <laughs> so as you may have heard, um, ACB.org has been launched. Very exciting. It's been a really long road to this point. In 2016, ACB and the Louisville Web Group started working on the mobile device view of our website. ACB's website was not displaying correctly on mobile phones at that point. This is when we began the discussion of creating an entirely new site and formed a team who could provide input on the website redesign. The old website was in desperate need of a refresh. It was quite difficult to find items that should have been obvious on the site, the content was very cluttered, and the website was not very exciting from a visual perspective. The website redesign team members and I wanted to make the site as intuitive as possible, so before even starting to work on the new design of the site, we went through all the pages and restructured the entire navigation system. Now pages are much easier to find. We also added several pages to provide more information that clearly defines ACB as an organization. In August of 2017, I sent out the first review of the new site to a large group of testers comprised of screen reader users, low vision users, and sighted users. This initial review was a big wake-up call. It was then that we all realized that nearly the entire website needed to be rewritten. The Louisville Web Group was simply porting content over from the old site to the new site. Our review team discovered that all of the content was old and extremely outdated. There were issues with formatting as well. So many different people have worked on ACB's website throughout the years, and there was never consistent standard in place for how to create content on the site. Since that date, we have updated all of the copy that you see in the upper navigation on the site and have worked to make all of the formatting consistent. Most of this copy has been written by our web testing group volunteers who gave up their free time to do so. Special thanks to Ron Brooks, chair of the Board of Publications, who wrote a very large portion of what you see on the new site. We met with a group of low vision testers to address concerns about visual aspects of the website in late 2017. They had concerns about how color was being used on the site and had some layout concerns as well. One of the issues this group brought up was the lack of visual interest on the site. The old site barely had any photos or video. The Louisville Web Group was able to enhance usability of the site for people with low vision based on their feedback. The site is now cleaner and easier to read because of their feedback. It also incorporates photos and video throughout the entire site to increase visual appeal. Future pages will incorporate many more photos and video. Many of the photos and videos used will be taken at convention by our convention photographer, Dennis Becker. PR committee chairman Katie Frederick and I worked together to create a list of videography projects and photography needs before convention to make sure that we have, a great, we have great usable media for the year. Dennis will be interviewing ACB members for videos we will be producing later in the year for use on our site. So if you happen to be interviewed, you might actually appear on our new website. 
Website volunteer testers have spent several months reviewing every page in the main navigation of the new site to make sure it is accessible and user-friendly. Each Friday, I would send a page out for review or more, and they would send feedback on the pages that following Tuesday. I would make a list of all the feedback I received, make all of the copy edits myself, and send the rest of the changes to the developers at the Louisville Web Group, along with a targeted completion date. Larry Turnbull, who has been my right-hand man through all of this, helping me with the accessibility side of things, would meet with the Louisville Web Group and myself weekly to discuss the feedback and all the changes we needed to make. After the initial review of the site had been completed, we did one final secondary review to ensure that all suggested changes had been made and the website was ready to launch. The web feedback process was quite painstaking and required a lot of time, dedication, and effort from our testers. Testers needed to be extremely thorough with this process to ensure that we found every issue on the page. Our testers spent hours reviewing this site week after week. I cannot begin to thank them enough. I could not have done it without them all. I've learned so much through this process, and the experience has been really amazing. The testers caught all sorts of issues with the copy, the layout, and in the actual code and structure of the site. They have directly contributed to a better experience for all users on the new website. So I just want to say to the testers, thank you so much. There's, there's quite a few of you. <laughs> So this new website is ACB's first true professional representation of who we are to the rest of the world. Team members and ACB staff will consistently be updating the site with new content, photos, and video. We have already planned a second phase in the design process that will implement new features for the site. This is a giant step forward in changing the entire look and feel of ACB, which is something we have been focusing on over the past year. As most of you know, ACB has a, has now, now has a new logo, which is displayed on signage throughout the convention center. It also appears on all of our publications, like the ACB Braille Forum and the annual report. ACB now has a much cleaner, fresher look, and I'm so happy we've been able to incorporate this new look into our website. Now, just a quick note about social media, because I also hand, uh, handle our social media pages. Last year, we had 3,027 likes on our Facebook page and 1,937 Twitter followers. This year, we have 3,501 likes on our Facebook page, which is a 15% increase, and, Twitter, and uh, 2,380 Twitter followers, which is a 22% increase in followers. We are now using Facebook Live to connect with our followers and have made a concerted effort to promote promote convention this year through our social media pages. We have a regular cadence with our posts to keep our followers in the know, so make sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with the happenings at ACB. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. I was certainly honored to be a part of that uh, testing team uh, since the day that Eric caught me in an airport waiting for a flight to Green Bay when uh, he called me and asked me to do that. But no, I was certainly honored to be a part of it, and I know the other testers were as well. It was uh, a great effort, and uh, I, all of you and all of us are going to benefit from the results of that work. So thank you. Okay. 
we have come to the end of our session this morning. I would like to personally, again, as I always like to do, thank each and every one of you for giving me the opportunity and the honor of presiding this morning. It's been uh, a lot of fun, as it always is, and um, I certainly wish each and every one of you a great convention, and um, why don't we... uh, Head out, if they can get to a microphone, why don't we end it with a couple of door prizes. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun. Enjoy the rest of your convention. I get the door prize. People have left the building. Okay, we'll do that tomorrow. Okay, that's going to conclude today's general session. And I'm going to get the archive trimmed up and we'll get the replay going here in the next hour or so so there's no live streaming this afternoon or this evening we will get underway again with general sessions tomorrow and we will also be doing uh, streaming tomorrow afternoon with the board of publications editors workshop and the ACB membership seminar And then tomorrow evening, we'll be streaming the board publications uh, candidates town hall. So that's uh, what we've got. And you can uh, look at the schedule, acbradio.org forward slash convention dash schedule. That will show you what we've got for the remainder of the convention. I've got some editing to do on a couple of other archives, and we'll be getting the replay going for the Friends and Nerd Showcase, which took place last night. We'll start that on the ACB Radio Cafe later this afternoon. And we'll also, uh, I'm working on getting some recordings from Rick, uh, who's handled all the recorders. I need to get the recordings from him so I can edit them and get some uh, replays going on live event. Though there are two workshops that were streamed a couple of days ago that uh, I'll work on getting on there as well. And, of course, we'll be updating the ACB convention feed, and that's at acbradio.org forward slash ACB dash convention. All right, with that, I'm going to sign off, and we will talk to you later.